So this is kind of the plan that, that I had of what we're going to accomplish is we're going to start with why study the Bible, you know, what makes it different, unique, and hopefully that's kind of an encouragement. I think there's always times where in my life I've gotten a little, oh, I got to do this. It's like vitamins. It's like exercise. It's like something that's good for me. And, um, and hopefully we're just going to get a little reinvigorated from some things about that, you know, why the Bible is worth our time and our heart and our energy. And then we're going to bridge over. Jerry's going to pick up some, some little bit about tools. Um, you know, there's different versions of the Bible. You know, what version should you use? Or maybe what combination of versions should you use? What kind of tools are out there to really help us? To, You know, one of the things I have a lot of people will read a scripture passage. This is really confusing. I don't get it. I don't understand it. Uh, well, there's tools out there to help. Um, I, I used to be horrible at fixing things. Now I'm just moderately bad. Um, so in my old house, I was trying to install a disposal under the sink, and my roommate came in after I've been working like for an hour and a half on this project, and he's like, "What are you doing?" I was like, "I'm trying to install this disposal." I was like, "Well, you're not using the right tool," and I'm like, "Well, you could have told me that like an hour ago. Like, you're still letting me struggle here." Well, that's what it's like trying to understand certain scripture passages without the right tools at your disposal, and we're going to walk through what some of those are. Um, and hopefully make you a, a really great Christmas and birthday list if you're looking for things that people need to buy you. Um, then we're going to go into uh, a short break. We'll take short breaks every hour. So if you're needing a refill of coffee, all that kind of stuff, you know, at the end of each hour, we'll take a break. And then we're going to jump back in with kind of some basic rules of the game. You know, why is it that certain denominations and certain Christians seem to never disagree and never agree on what one passage means? Well, the reason is because we're using different rules of interpreting the Bible. And if you start off with some different rules, then you end up at different places. Um, and, and even in our church history, it's really interesting to me um, to, to read what the pilgrims and how they interpreted the Bible, you know, when they first came to America. Um, and, and they had some really strange ways of interpreting the Bible um, compared to how, how I would understand it. So uh, we're going to get into some of that, and then we're going to start doing it. So we're going to actually grab some passages of Scripture. We're going to start... Like, we're going to interpret it, we're going to, uh, you know, observe, interpret, apply, do it all here. So that'll take us through 11, and we'll, we'll see Jerry will be kind of leading us through some different exercises through that. And then also in our 11 o'clock hour, we're planning on just talking about different ways to study the Bible. If you do the same thing over and over again, yeah. then um, I'm going to give you up to 12 different ways to study the Bible. And you can do these on a rotation. Some are not able to be done in five minutes. So there's faster ones. There's slower ones. They're all meaningful. So we're going to go through some of that. And then um, at the very end, um, our kind of our last thing is just some closing thoughts, you know, some ideas of some common errors that people make when they're trying to interpret the Bible for themselves. What do we do with really hard passages? Um, and, and just some different things that final hour. And my hope is always to end early. Right around, you know, 12, 30 in Grace University class, we're all kind of like, let's make it to the end. So that's my, that's my heart that we'll, we'll end. But uh, if you've ever hung out with Jerry, once he gets into exegesis, it doesn't always go speedy. So um, we, we, I put that buffer in there so we'll also end on that's time. That's because so. I charge by the hour. <laughs> that's because he charges by the hour. That's exactly how it is. No contingent fees here. That's right. There you go. So that is the answer. So that's our plan for today. So Pete is handing out notes. So you shouldn't have to write a lot for the parts that I'm talking. Um, so Pete will help out with that. And I just want to... Uh, before I jump into an opening prayer, did anyone have any thoughts or things? Oh, since you're going to talk about that, make sure to cover blank. Awesome. You guys know all this cool stuff. Cool. 
Well, let's, let's just open up in a word of prayer. God, you chose to give us a book to help reveal yourself to us. You, you didn't choose to give us uh, a song. Uh, you didn't choose to give us a movie. But you chose to give us a book. And a book that is transcendent across time. That even though it was written different parts of it over 2,000 years ago and some much earlier than that. It still speaks today, and that's because your Holy Spirit um, really inspired the words of this book and made them different. And so we're just asking right now that you would just knock the dust off any uh, of our hearts that have gotten a little passive when it comes to your scriptures, when it comes to caring about your words. And we ask in, in Jesus' name that you would just really light a fire today under us, that we would dive in. Um, and we would not just dive in to read and observe, but to understand the heart of our God and what uh, you would like for us to be doing and thinking about in these times that we live. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. All right, did everyone get some notes? Uh, Pete's handing those out. We ran out of staples. Ran out of staples. I'm telling you, it's like either staples or notes or something. You know, you can hand out the six we got, and we'll do more. I apologize. My uh, kids are having a hard time finding their shoes this morning, getting out the door. And uh, so there we go. All right. So this, this, half <laughs> this half of the room is going to get notes. This half won't. So I just want to start off with a few quotes about the Bible that, that really impacted me. You know, A.W. Tozer said, The word of God, well understood and religiously obeyed, is the shortest route to spiritual perfection. And we must not select a few favorite passages to the exclusion of others. Nothing less than a whole Bible can make a whole Christian. And I think this is, um, this is an epidemic in the American church, is that we get really good at about four Bible verses, and then we get less good at the whole Bible. And I think, uh, I think this is something that I would love to see us grow in. Elizabeth Elliot said, The word of God I think of as a straight edge, which shows up, on our, shows up our own crookedness. We can't really tell how crooked our thinking is until we line it up with the straight edge of Scripture. And there's so much, uh, Jerry and I talk all the time, there's so much things that people say and we're thinking, that is not right. That, that does not line up with Scripture. And, and you just, you drift. You know, Gary talks a lot about this cultural drift, that if we're not coming back to the Scripture on a regular basis, we'll drift. And this helps us line up our thinking um, with what God's thinking is. Martin Luther said, the Bible is the cradle wherein Christ is laid. You know, people say, I want to know Christ. I want to know Jesus. This is where we find him. This is where he is revealed the clearest to us. He is a person. We're not worshiping a book. But the Bible is the place that we connect with him the most. It is through his word. Um, this is a, a non-believer, Mahatma Gandhi, but I thought it was really interesting what he had to say. He said, you Christians look after a document containing enough dynamite to blow all civilization to pieces, turn the world upside down, and bring peace to a battle-torn planet, but you treat it as though it is nothing more than a piece of literature. And he was a non-believer who could understand just the, the sheer power of the Bible if we got serious about understanding it and doing what it says. So what do you need to understand the Bible? You need four things, and there's some blanks in your handouts, depending on which version you got. Um, and the four things that you need is you need a Bible. So uh, Jerry was like, not everyone brought a Bible this morning. I'm like, Jerry, sometimes people use their phones. 
So you're allowed to use your phone as a Bible as long as the phone, uh, you know how to access it. If you can't find the app on your phone, then that doesn't count. If you don't know how to launch it or you can't know how to like navigate it and find a book of the Bible, then, then you've got to get a paper version. So we have extra ones. Um, but if you do know how to work it, <clears throat> that's totally fine. Um, another thing we need to understand the Bible, in my mind, is you need to pay attention. You know, sometimes I hear people say, I, I do a lot of Bible stuff in the car. Or I do a lot of Bible stuff while a lot of other things are going on. And I'm sometimes a little distractible um, unless I kind of put headphones on and get in focus mode. And I think to understand the Bible, we need to be able to focus. So a lot of times people talk about a quiet place, talk about, you know, a, a quiet area um, where your kids aren't jumping all over you. Um, you need to be able to place where you can pay attention to hear God's voice as you study the Bible. Um, you need sufficient time. Not like tons of time, but you need time. Some of the methods we're going to talk about take, you know, 30 minutes, 45 minutes, um, heaven forbid, an hour. Um, and these aren't things we do necessarily every day, but there's times where like, it would be really useful to read through a whole book of the Bible at one sitting. It might take 30 minutes just to read through it, depending on how fast you read. Um, it's such a great exercise, but that takes time. And so um, some of these things you got to schedule out time and not just fit it into a three-minute a coffee break at work. Um, and then we need the Spirit's help. You know, this is a, a big thing uh, that we need to, you know, without the Spirit, we can't really understand the Scriptures. So why study the Bible? 1 Peter 2.23 says, Like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment now that you have had a taste of the Lord's kindness. And, uh, man, I mean, we, we start with just saying, Lord, we want to grow. We want to not be the same place next year that we are this year. We want to see continuous growth. And so we need to crave the spiritual nourishment of the Bible for us to grow. Um, and, of course, 2 Timothy 3.16 is the, the key verse. You know, every scripture is inspired by God and useful for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness that the person dedicated to God may be capable and equipped for every good work. You know, recently we've been hiring some different people up in the church staff and some people moving. We've been doing a lot of evaluating of, okay, now who's going to join our team? Who's, who's capable of doing this job? Who's equipped for this job? And as we've been thinking through people's abilities and equipping, um, it, it just reminded me of this. You know, God has stuff that he wants us to do. But if we don't put in the time we just talked about on the previous slide, we won't be capable to do it. We won't be equipped to do it. We won't know what to say. We'll say the wrong thing. We'll say really unhelpful things. And this is God's plan for us, is that we will devote ourselves. You know, Acts 2 talks about the early church. They were devoted to the apostles' teaching, and they were devoted to the scriptures. And, um, and this is important so that we'll be capable and equipped to do what God wants us to do in this time and season of our lives. So Hebrews 5 says this, On this topic we have much to say, and it is difficult to explain since you have become sluggish in hearing. For though you should in fact be teachers by this time, you need someone to teach you the beginning elements of God's utterances. You've gone back to needing milk, not solid food. <coughs> this is another one that it's just, uh, I think of how blessed we are in America versus some other places in the world. Um, one of my good friends is about to head over to reach an unreached people group in Southeast Asia where they have no Bible in their heart language. I think we have so many versions of the Bible. We have so many translations. We have so many ways to help us. 
And yet so many of our people have become sluggish in hearing. And, and so many people who've been in our church for a long time should be teachers by this time. Um, and yet some of them can't. And it's because we don't do the work ourselves. We're depending on others. And we have to be a church that knows how to go to the scriptures for ourselves to know what we are to do. So this is the last part of that scripture. For everyone who lives on milk is inexperienced in the message of righteousness because he is an infant, but solid food is for the mature whose perceptions are trained by practice to discern both good and evil. It takes practice for us to think through how God thinks about good and evil. So why study the Bible? Three things. If we want to grow spiritually, it's essential. There's no such thing as a person who doesn't read and study the Bible and study not in an academic sense, like I want to be able to pass a test in a final, but study to understand and apply it to my life. You just don't get spiritual growth any other way. You don't get it any other way. Maturity. You know, if we need people that are mature, that aren't uh, caught up by the latest fad, um, one of the things Jerry and I do talk about also is the latest fads that sweep through Christianity. You know, the latest books, latest things. And if you don't want to get caught up in the latest fads, then you have to have some spiritual maturity and discernment. Uh, and these are found through living with the Bible. So, um, I wanted to cover just a couple more things. I'm going to hand it off to Jerry to talk about tools, I think. Um, uh, let, me grab, let me grab a set of notes real fast, just so I don't jump ahead and go for a while. I've got to set back here. All right. Last day of the Bible. Oh, this was an interesting thing. Um, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to cover this section. I'm going to hand it off to you, Jerry, in about like 10 minutes. Okay, brother. So... Um, the Bible is different than any other book because we believe, because the Bible says it is, the Bible is inerrant. Who can tell me what inerrant means? Without error. Without error. Um, so that means when we go through the book of the Bible, it means uh, what we would say is in the original <coughs> writings, it's without error. And that's an important distinction. But, but if I asked you, like, where, where would you prove the Bible's without error? Because every, every book could have errors in it. Um, how would you just how would you prove to me the Bible's without error? How would you kind of influence me and say, yeah, it's without error because of this? Yeah, I remember from uh, November's class that uh, Pastor went through the explanation of how Jesus said that it was uh, reliable. Excellent. So Jesus rose from the dead. So he's the only man in history who's done this. So when he says something, we should, like, believe him, right? So it's a good way to anchor this whole idea of our Christianity in the resurrection. Like, that was the defining moment of Christianity, I think, in many ways. So Jesus said the Bible is inerrant. And he said it many different ways and many different kinds of ways. So one of the important pieces of that is he said the Old Testament is an error because that's all the scriptures they had. Remember, Jesus lived and then the New Testament was written about Jesus' life and what happened after Jesus' life. So all they had was the Old Testament during Jesus' time. But he spent much of his time affirming the inerrancy of the Bible. One of the things that many people will come to us and say, hey, you know, did Jesus really believe all that crazy stuff in the Old Testament? Well, if you go to your notes, um, one of the things that we do know is Jesus, like if we go through these passages, you know, he talks about it is written, um, affirming that these things that were written in the Old Testament are true. 
Uh, but one of the things I think is interesting is he also affirms the historicity of the Bible. So not just the inerrancy of the Bible, but he affirms the historicity. So if you go through like Matthew twelve forty, Matthew sixteen four, let's go through a couple of these. Um, so who's got a Bible with them? This would be fun. No one's got a Bible with them. So Rosie, why don't you look up Matthew twelve forty, and let's do Matthew sixteen four as well. Who's got that one? Go, Phil. Whoever gets there first with their fast or slow Bibles or the ones with the tabs. Like whenever we did sword drills growing up, you know, that was like a speed drill to find a scripture. If you had the tab Bible, that was like cheating because then you could like just grab the tab and flip it open. But I think it could be just preparing ahead. Do you get it, Rosie? Yeah. Go for it real loud. 40? Yeah, Matthew twelve forty. For just as Jonah was there, was three days and three nights in the belly of the sea monster, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So just as Jonah was there. So as you hear Jesus, the man who claimed to be God, who was God, and he rose from the dead, say that just as Jonah was there, what does that lead you to believe about the historicity of the Jonah fish swallowing incident? It's real. We know that that really happened. There's so many people say, well, that was... That was kind of a fictional story. That was an illustration that really happened. The big fish really didn't throw up Jonah on the beach. You know, all the pieces of that. It's a crazy story when you think about it. But this big fish swallowed a prophet and kept him in the water for three days and then threw him up on a beach somewhere. Um, but yet Jesus believed that story and said it was real. So it's important to realize that connection. So what I did in your notes, just a fun thing, uh, I got this from Norm Geisler, who's one of the great teachers of our day. Um, Jesus or his disciples personally taught and affirmed something specific about every one of the chapters from Genesis 1 to Genesis 22. And I listed them off there in the first 24 things. And what's interesting about that is those are the most controversial chapters, I think, when people attack the historicity of the Bible. You know, did creation really happen this way? Did Adam really exist? Did Cain and Abel really exist? Did Cain really kill Abel? You go through all these pieces of that early Genesis thing, and people will say, you can't really trust the Bible. Have you read Genesis? And I think what's interesting about that is Jesus or the people that he personally discipled affirm every chapter of Genesis 1 to 22. And a bunch of other ones. We just read about Jonah and the great fish, but he also affirmed many other events in your notes there. So I think it's good for us to remember when reading the Bible, this is historically accurate. It's it's without error, and it's history that we can believe in. So um, I do want to just camp out just for a second on this idea of what does it mean to be inerrant. You know, every scripture is inspired by God. I mean, God literally uh, breathed through men to write scripture. It's God-breathed. Um, but, but what does it mean to be inerrant? And I, I think it's important to say that it's inerrant in the original writings. And I just want to give you one example just to kind of illustrate how this is important. Because we're going to get a little bit into versions of the Bible in a minute and different tools that help us. So I need somebody to grab 2 Samuel 21.19 and someone else to grab 1 Chronicles 25. We have two new printers here at our church. Um, One of them is massive and huge, so we're calling it Goliath. 
The other one is small, so we're calling it David. And uh, so I printed all these notes on David this morning. Um, but this is a little short. What? Uh, not yet, but I have thought about throwing rocks at this morning when I didn't print my notes fast enough. So, <laughs> Okay, let's start with 2 Samuel 21, 19, and let's read this historic retelling of an event. Who's got it? I didn't look who's raising hands. No one's got it. I've got it, but I can't pronounce half the stuff. Okay, we're going to give a run. There are some weird names in here. You got, And this is a historic event with people's names, so give it a good shot. All right, 2119. And there was war with the Philistines again at Gob and Elhan, the son of Bill, and the Bethlehemite killed Goliath, the Gittite, the, the shaft of whose spear was like a weaver's beam. Massive dude. So his it's, name really isn't Bill, but I didn't want to massacre his name. So this is just a retelling a little bit of this battle with David and Goliath <coughs> heard in the scriptures, except for when Pete just read that, he said something different. Did you guys hear it? Elhanan killed Goliath, whose spear was this massive beam, and there's all sorts of things going on there. So you guys may have never known that Elhanan killed Goliath. So who's got First Chronicles 25? Go for it. Okay. Then Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem in the house of the Lord before the new court. Ah, oh, I think I have a typo. Hang on one second. Try Second Chronicles 25, just for grins. 25? Yeah. And there was war with the Philistines? There you go. the brother of Goliath in 1 Chronicles. And in 2 Samuel, Elhanan killed Goliath. So I'm going to, do you have any ideas of what might be going on here? A lot of brothers. What? A lot of brothers. A lot of brothers is part of it. Goliath had a bunch of brothers. He had four, five brothers, right? Because, well, him and four brothers or something like that. So Goliath had four brothers. And so remember David picked up like multiple stones out of the stream bed? He didn't need five shots. He needed one, but, but Goliath had all these brothers, and he wasn't sure who was coming after him. You kill a brother, that's a big deal. Um, so one of the things that happened is, you guys know when, when this was originally written down, they didn't have photocopiers like we do downstairs. So they would handwrite, scribes would handwrite from verse to verse to verse as this would be rewritten multiple times. Well, sometimes, every once in a while, they would have a typo. I don't know if you guys have ever seen our emails that we shoot out where we give text to somebody and then somebody slightly edits it and also we got typos introduced. It doesn't affect most of it. Like, you guys still understand it, but you guys probably catch our typos. Everyone's like, yeah, they typoed that. You're going to read through my notes today and catch some typos because typos happen over time for little small things. And usually we can figure out what happened. If we were to go look at these two passages, there's actually issues in both of them. But it's pretty obvious that the guy who was copying 2 Samuel forgot to write the brother of Goliath. So actually, Elhanan killed the brother of Goliath, not David. And David killed Goliath. So that's we were able to go through and look at that with these two very old passages. But if someone says, hey, the Bible's without error, we would say the Bible in its original form is without error. And we have 99.9999% accuracy of what that was. 
so nothing that could really change anything, but I just want to throw that out there so you guys are aware that there are some things in there that vary in very slight ways, but nothing that would change our faith or change substantively any of these stories. Yeah. Case in point, page two, Yeah. number eight, the sacrifices of Abel by Cain. That's probably murder. Yeah. Or that they actually did do sacrifices. I think I, he was affirming the kind of sacrifice, the worship. Of Abel by Cain? Uh, oh, that probably is the murder, that particular one. You're right. I think the the, the one before is supposed to be. You're right. About a typo in my notes there. Yeah. You're right. It's the murder of Abel by Cain is number eight. I mistyped that. Very good. So does that make sense, guys? Okay. So if you want to know a lot about the details of inerrancy. There's a guys that have written exhaustively on it on this website um, that Norm Geisler put together called DefendingInerrancy.com where they just talk a ton about what do we mean by inerrancy. Sometimes people will say things like oh, we can't believe the Bible's true because the Bible said Jesus is the Lamb of God and Jesus didn't go bye-bye so of course the Bible has errors in it. Well, no, we don't really believe Jesus was a literal lamb. It was an illustration. you know. And so there's things like that that people will throw at us. Um, and this website's a great resource for defending all those. But for us this morning, I think most of us are on track with, we have an amazing book, and it is worth our time and worth our, our passion and energy and focus to, to go after it. So I'm going to uh, hand it off to Jerry to kind of talk about versions of the Bible and some of the, the tools and things we should add to our Christmas list this year if you don't have the right things. Somebody, be kind of, Anthony, would you be kind enough to flip the lights off here because I'm not going to use the screen I never use the screen because I don't know how to use the screen Uh, let me mention a couple of things to you real quick first of all uh, let me pick up on something Jonathan was saying with regard to inerrancy you are going to hear if you talk to friends that are uh, don't know much about the Bible or not believers they're going to say yeah but the Bible is full of contradictions and usually what they're talking about is in the Gospels but there Jonathan gave you a couple of examples that uh, in the Old Testament Uh, but for example in one Gospel it says as Jesus was going into Jericho he met two blind men and another uh, Gospel says as he was coming out of Jericho uh, he met a blind man, Bartimaeus. Okay, there are various differences, particularly in the Gospels, in this regard. Uh, people who say that say, "Oh, we'll see that kills its credibility." All right, take it from one who's in the profession. Any good trial lawyer knows that that enhances credibility. It doesn't detract from it. When I've got witnesses one after another and they are telling the identical story without any variation or change, they're lying. They've memorized their story. When you have different witnesses and the gospel writers are, they are telling a story from different perspectives. When you have truthful witnesses up there on the witness stand, they are going to vary in their versions even to the point of minor contradictions. It does not undermine credibility of the scripture. It enhances it. What you know is 
these gospel writers are giving you uh, essentially the same story, slightly different uh, perspectives. So don't let this, oh, it's full of contradictions, uh, you know, they, this, that, and the other. Many of the contradictions are frankly explainable. But even those that aren't are evidence of the truthfulness of the writers. It doesn't undermine uh, the uh, credibility of the scripture. And of course, Jonathan was talking about how one of the great problems we've got in the church right now is tremendous ignorance of the scriptures. And I hope we can get into later just how dangerous that is. I was telling Jonathan the other day that uh, uh, Wheaton did uh, a survey among evangelical Christians asking them biblical stories, uh, biblical questions, uh, true, false, multiple choice. And the majority of evangelical Christians responding to the question, true or false, Sodom was married to Gomorrah, responded true. Uh, if you're not laughing, there's a problem for you. Sodom was married to Delilah, right? We all know that. And there are all kinds of quotes being given about the scripture uh, that aren't in the scripture. Defending a shoplifter one time, he told me he had a biblical defense. I said, good, what is that? He said, God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> All right, that's not the scripture that poor Richard's almanac. <laughs> Incidentally, the judge didn't buy it. Okay, let's talk about some biblical tools. And the first thing we want to do in talking about biblical tools is we want to talk about types of Bibles. And um, there are a number of translations of different Bibles. But what I want to suggest to you, uh, and then we handed out the... Uh, Oh, the photocopy thing. Yeah. Oh, oh here we go. There you go. Yeah. Uh, what I want to suggest to you is, before we talk about translation, I want to suggest a type of Bible you want to consider getting if you want to learn a little more about uh, the Scripture, and that is what's called a study Bible. And the value of the study Bible is, and what I'm handing you is uh, examples of a study Bible. Uh, there are different translations, obviously. Uh, New, uh, uh, New American, NSB, <laughs> New American Standard Version, uh, Standard Bible, NIV, New International Version, uh, King James is KGV, and New King James, which has been introduced more recently, is uh, the NKJV, and the Charlie King James has. Uh, there's the ESV, that's the English Standard Version. And these are all uh, various types of translations. Um, and we'll talk in a minute about the difference between translation and um, paraphrase. Because there are various uh, books of the scripture that are really not translations, they're paraphrase. And even when you have translations, you, and that is they are taking it as best they can, and uh, these translations are pretty effective. They are <coughs> taken as, nobody has the original writings that, that were written 2,000 years ago. What we have is copies, and the copies we have uh, are fairly 
uh, good. And I don't have time to go into it, but you, of course you get all this other argument, well, those were all translations of copies and who knows what all went on down through the centuries. Well, not as much as they think. Yeah. Uh, we don't have time to get into it, uh, but that can be established that the translations taken from the existing copies that we do have, those copies are quite accurate. We don't have time to get into how they know that. Uh, but nonetheless, translations go back to the not the original writings, but very effective and accurate copies, and they take it from the Greek and put it in the English. Paraphrases don't do that. In the Old Testament, most often they will take it from the, uh, the Hebrew, the Masoretic text. Uh, there was also the uh, uh, Septuagint, which was translation into Greek of uh, Old Testament Hebrew. Uh, NASB takes it directly from the Masoretic text, which is the original Hebrew translations. Now, even though every, every Bible I just mentioned, NASB, NIV, etc., is a translation. There is a point where the translators have got to interpret yep. certain things because they are trying to translate into another language. Uh, and it's helpful to read different translations. In the men's group that meets on Monday, on, on Wednesday and Saturday morning, there's usually eight to ten guys sitting around a table and they have different translations. And we get into, uh, we'll read a verse out of NASB, and I'll ask somebody who's got a different translation, and they will read the verse. There'll be a slight difference. NASB, for example, uh, is more concentrated, and correct me if I'm wrong here, is more concentrated on the exact uh, translation of the Greek or the Hebrew. It's more literal. Where, yeah, more literal. Whereas NIV, concentrates more on the idea that's being expressed in the scripture. Neither one is ineffective or wrong, uh, but you will get certain differences. Uh, and uh, I could give you an example, but I don't think we have time to do that right now. So it doesn't hurt to look at different translations. Uh, now, when I say study, but incidentally, one of the guys in our men's group is always reading out of the NIV, New International Version. Uh, that's what you got. Um, I tell him that NIV means the nearly inspired version. <laughs> and I'm always reading out of the New American Standard Bible, NASB, and he tells me NASB stands for not actually scripture. <laughs> so we have this ongoing battle uh, with one another. Now, what I uh, went on to say is what you really want to be looking at uh, is a study Bible. And the reason for that, not because it's more accurate than another translation, but because it can help you as you want to begin to understand. So, for example, and this is out of the NASB, the not actually scripture Bible. Uh, look at the third page of what I handed out to you. This is a page from the NASB from the 10th chapter of Matthew. And you'll see down the middle here, various scriptures. Everybody see this? Yep. Mm -hmm. All right. What that's doing is, as to particular scriptures in um, the passage, in this case, Matthew 10, starting with verse 19, 
they are giving you references of other verses that deal with the issue that or subject that's being talked about in Matthew 10 19. So if you look at verse 19 at the upper left hand, you'll see uh, it says, but when they hand you over and there is a small a, small a tells you there's going to be a reference in the center column for verse 19 with regard to that phrase, but when they hand you over. So move over to the center column and you'll see it says 19. Mm -hmm. Everybody with me? Yep. 19 means Matthew 10, 19. Notice that it references Matthew 10, 19 through 22, Mark 13, 11. Uh, well, what he's doing there is he's showing you where this same passage mm -hmm. uh, is treated by the other uh, uh, gospels. But you'll notice uh, B, uh, do not worry about how they want you, what you are to say. And then you'll see B gives you a reference to Matthew 6.25, Luke 12.11, etc. That can be very helpful. Now, at the bottom of the page, what you have is commentary on various verses. And these commentaries are written by theologians, uh, many times the, uh, seminary teachers. Uh, and, you know, basically men who are well trained in commentary. Some of them are actually part of the translation team on, on the scriptures. Now, does it cover every verse at the bottom? No. But it will go into some interesting detail uh, a lot of times about uh, what certain verses mean. Some of the times it'll even cover different interpretations of that passage. Uh, and may even give you an idea of you know which one would be the preferred. So it can be very helpful. None of us are theologians. Uh, I was telling Jonathan, you're getting a, a double barrel, two sides. Jonathan's been to seminary. I've never been to seminary. Uh, so you've got it from both sides. Uh, and so if I can get it, folks, you can get it. I've never been to a Bible school or seminary, but you can get it and understand Scripture from reading it. Uh, now, let's look at um, the first two pages. Notice this one says Colossians. And it's uh, in the study Bibles very often they will start every book of the Bible with an understanding of when it was written, who wrote it, who's he writing to, um, uh, what's it about, what are the themes. Notice here in Colossians, uh, at the bottom of page one, he's saying one of the major areas that Paul is dealing with in writing to the Colossians is dealing with a certain heresy, early Gnosticism that was beginning to show itself in the church even in Paul's time. Uh, you turn over to page two here, and it tells you what the purpose and theme is of Colossians. Other introductions to other books will be longer in terms of purpose and themes, depending on uh, who, what the book is. This is extremely important right here, because when you begin to study and interpret the scripture, the first thing you do in the rules of, of, of interpretation, and we'll get into this, is context. Mm -hmm. 
And one of the reasons so many false, so much false teaching is going on, and people are going off after this false teacher and that, is they take verses out of context. Uh, and there are different <coughs> levels of context. There's the context of the whole book, then there is the context of a particular passage within the book. They say in the real estate business, con uh, location, location, location. In the biblical interpretation business, it's context, context, context. So this is extremely important, very valuable for you, and it takes you maybe three to five minutes to read it, uh, to get it, and it'll, it'll really give you some insight. Okay. Now, uh, let me talk about paraphrases real quick. And when do you want to take a break? Oh, maybe like 10 minutes or so. Yeah, how about 30? 30 minutes. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> Just kidding. I'll go 40. I have thought for 50 years. So should we Okay. Let's talk about paraphrases. Um, paraphrase is a, um, a quote Bible, but it is often not based on direct translation from the original or copies. Um, and it is sort of, and you can do paraphrase actually. We could take a verse, um, let's just go back to Matthew 10, 19. It says, but when they hand you over, do not worry about what you are to say, for it will be given to you at that very hour what you are to say. So a paraphrase would be so that when you're arrested and taken before the court, don't worry about coming up with a defense. God will tell you what to say. That's a paraphrase. Mm -hmm. I don't like that verse because it cuts lawyers completely out. <laughs> <laughs> paraphrases and there are some not so good paraphrases. Uh, when I first became a Christian the only Bible I had I was in a senior in law school and the only Bible <coughs> I had was a paraphrase. It's good news for modern man. Hmm. And I wrote, read it voraciously uh, when the Holy Spirit first opened my heart to understand what it was about. Para good news for modern man is okay. The paraphrase I like most and it's still a paraphrase is J.B. Phillips. Good example of J.B. Phillips, uh, Romans 12, 2 says, And don't be conformed to the image of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. J.B. Phillips will say, Don't let the world squeeze you into its mold. Uh, all right, not exact translation, but very close. Uh, uh, one of the uh, other translations more recently uh, uh, that's come out is Eugene Phillips' uh, uh, paraphrase the message. Mm -hmm. Now I will tell you, I don't like the message. Uh, it's some of its uh, some of its verses are quite good. Some of the passages are very good, but others uh, are 
way off. Uh, he even leaves out verses, and some of his translation creates theological questions. Uh, I think at one part when he's, uh, I could be wrong here, but it's an example of, you know, he who believes in him uh, has eternal life. And I think the way the message writes it is he who believes in him gets in on everything. Mm-hmm. Well, that yeah, go check me on that. It's been years since I looked at that. I might be giving you wrong. But I, we, in the men's group on Saturday morning, we often will check uh, different translations. And then we will check paraphrases in the message. Uh, is always good for a laugh because uh, sometimes it's right on and other times it is way off. Uh, and so I'm not a fan of the message. Now, another Bible that's a paraphrase in a sense but claims to be a translation, and I want to warn you about this one, it's called a Passion Translation. Anybody heard it? Mm-hmm. Heard of it? Stay away from it. Uh, the guy that's translated it, Brian Simmons, is not a qualified translator. He says he was helped by other translators to translate it, but he never will say who they are. And he has twisted the scripture at times to fit the teaching of what's called the New Apostolic Reformation, which is an outfit uh, that really is getting off into the weeds. Uh, They claim you can get new revelation. Just stay away from the passion. Uh, translation. It's not a good translation. Okay. Um, um, other things that you might want to look at that can be helpful. Big books. Uh, heavy books. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> now, if you want to go to church carrying this under your arm, they will all assume you're a seminary prophet. <laughs> Some of the things that can be helpful are diction, biblical dictionaries, and there are a lot of them. Now, here's an example of one. Uh, this is the Holman Bible Dictionary. Uh, and I'm not saying you just sit with page one and read through it. I mean, that might be a little like the phone book, uh, unless you really love biblical facts, which I do. Uh, but what it can do, it, it gives you some wonderful information that can supplement what you're reading. And it maybe takes you, what, two or three minutes to read it if you want to. But, for example, it will tell you uh, the history and background of different people groups uh, in the Bible. You wanna, you're want you reading, let's say you're reading in First uh, Samuel and you're reading about David's attack on the Amalekites. Uh, uh, which I think is 1 Samuel 30. Uh, Turn to the Malachites in this uh, dictionary, and it'll give you the history and background of the Malachites and why David attacked them and why God wasn't in favor of them and that sort of thing. It will also uh, give you a a, a summation uh, of the various books of the Bible. It will tell you the historical and archaeological evidence of various places in the Bible, it will tell you uh, the names uh, of everything, everyone in places in the Bible. Uh, and it will uh, tell you what those names mean. Not only the person's name, but a place's name. One thing I find very interesting is, for example, AI uh, does not mean artificial intelligence in the scripture. 
place? AI? Yeah, AI, the town. The city. AI. There was a battle fought there by the Jewish people coming in under Joshua. AI means place of ruin or heap of ruin. Bethel, for example, means house of bread or house of God. Uh, in Genesis, when Abraham came back from Egypt in Genesis 12, he had made a major mess of things when he went down there. He lied to Pharaoh. Uh, Pharaoh uh, he knew that Sarah was a nice-looking gal and that, the, of course, the Egyptians were not in favor of divorce. They just simply killed the husband and then took the wife. And so he told Sarah, tell them when they ask your relationship to me, tell them you're my sister, which she was in a sense. And so Pharaoh said, who's the nice-looking girl? Oh, that's my <coughs> sister. Uh, and so Pharaoh took rid of the harem. So uh, Abraham had left Canaan, gone to Egypt, total lack of faith, fell flat on his face. Egypt, Pharaoh, kicked him out in Genesis 12. When he came back, in a sense, to the promised land, interesting thing, he camped between Bethel, house of God, and Ai, total ruin. <laughs> And so there are always some interesting things that you can get understanding what some of these names mean. God has a sense of humor. Do you know what Nazareth means? Jesus of Nazareth? You know what Nazareth means? The branch. So God has a way of advertising. When it was Jesus of Nazareth, he's selling everybody. It's Jesus the branch. Everybody remember the branch mm -hmm. from the Old Testament? That's a messianic title. I love God's sense of humor. <laughs> okay. Uh, and then I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to wrap it up. You said 10 minutes, and that was fair. So maybe he like in coordinates. Uh, yeah. Uh, one of the things you want to consider, too, is the, the dictionaries will have this. And there are lots of dictionaries that are very good. The back of your Bible will have this, and that is maps that will tell you where events are taking place. It will orient you. For example, Jerusalem is in the south-central part of Israel. Galilee is way north of Jerusalem. And Samaria is in between the two of them. And it gives you some idea of how the events are ongoing. Uh, they'll give you maps of the place at different times in the Bible. Now, finally, what I would suggest, too, a couple of things real quick. One is concordances. A good concordance will list every word in the Bible and tell you wherever that word is again in other places in the Bible. That can be very helpful. Uh, uh, originally, the three really good concordances I used to like were Cruden's, Young's, and Strong's. Uh, Strong's uh, is very thick, about this big. I couldn't bring it with me because I, I had to have a trailer on the back of my uh, car. But not only does it list every single word in the scripture and where that word is listed elsewhere in the scripture, it'll tell you the Greek or Hebrew meaning of that word. Uh, and a pastor I used to know, uh, really the guy that led me to Christ, used to say, if you're, uh, if you're young, get youngs. If you're strong, get strongs. If you're crude, get crudence. Uh, but now, one of the real values of this, and what I want to close in talking about, is you can now get the equivalent online. Real easy. And the one that I, now, uh, 
they're different online Bible studies. The one I use is Blue Letter Bible. It's the website. And it gives you, oh, 10 or 12 translations that you can click on. It will uh, give you, you can click on uh, a particular area next to the uh, verse that you're looking at, and it'll take you to the, the very, it'll break down the words in that uh, verse, and it'll tell you exactly what the Greek or Hebrew meaning of those words are. It'll tell you where those words are elsewhere. Uh, it's extremely effective in terms of helping you understand uh, certain words if, if you've got time and want to go that far. It'll give you articles, it'll give you commentaries, uh, it'll give you histories. Uh, there's a number of things you can get with it and other Bible online groups, uh, websites will do similar things. So there, the tools online now are absolutely phenomenal. For free. And free, yes. And, you know, whereas with uh, Strong's commentary, you open the Bible and you turn the page, you turn the page, and then you look down the line. You know, you can do all that three times, five times faster with the online. Bang! You see what it is? That's what it means. Here's where it's listed elsewhere. It's a tremendous tool to use in learning to study and understand the scripture. Okay, I'm going to quit. You want to take a break? Let's take a five-minute break. I have a question. Yeah. What do you think of the Net Bible? Much about the Net Bible. Uh, I can't tell. I don't know much about the Net. You? Yeah. So I, it I is. I came across one that yeah. I've had for years, and I haven't. You use it anytime at. you're fishing. I so <laughs> but it, you know, it doesn't yeah. have commentaries. It has the actual translator's notes of yes. why he said what he did. Yeah. So one of my professors translated much of the Psalms and some of the Old Testament books. It's it's um, the Dallas Seminary is involved in it. Yeah, um, it is. I would just say letter for like word for word, it's probably not as good as the NASB. But what I love about it is their translation notes are incredibly good. Mm -hmm. So what I what I care about in a Bible is I want to know when someone has made a decision for me without telling me. So sometimes, especially paraphrase, you run into this, like, you don't know if they've made a decision. You don't know if they said, yeah, we really think this is a verse talking about men and women, so we're just going to say the family. And, and they just kind of make that decision for you, whereas they, Stephen, say mankind or men. Or they'll say more literal tied to it. So the Net Bible, I even used it earlier. Um, yeah. I like it because it's very readable. But when they make a decision, they put a big footnote there and they highlight it and are very explicit about the decision they made so that you're not wondering, hey, did somebody like, you know, translate this and, and fill in the blanks for me, you know, going in certain directions. I love it. And it's free, too. You can go online. They got it all out there. Good. Um, let's take a what? Short, short five-minute break. We'll kick back off at 10 after. Yeah. Well, guys, it's time to kick back off again. <laughs> So Jerry and I are going to try and fill up your Christmas and birthday list real fast. So Jerry talked about a Bible dictionary. Actually, raise your hand if you guys have one of these. I might have one. Not enough. My goodness. That, that's like, I would say, is the most helpful one that I go to the most. Um, how many of you guys have a good uh, systematic theology? Not never. Dude. Okay. So I'm going to recommend two. We'll see what Jerry wants to recommend on this. So uh, I love... If I, had, if I could only pick one, it would be Norm Geisler's Systematic Theology in one volume. And what a systematic theology does is it says, I want to take you through 
um, in a systematic way what the Bible says about prayer, what the Bible says about the church, what the Bible says about the Bible, what the Bible says about the Trinity. And there's chapters on each subject. Um, and then what I love about Geisler is he goes and talks about now what would other people who have a different view of the Trinity say, and he responds to those. So it's just an incredible, helpful tool um, if you're trying to focus in on a particular idea in Scripture. Um, another one that I recommend a lot is Grudem's Systematic Theology. Just such an easy to read. Yeah, so Jerry brought Grudem's. Um, and he is just, I think, one of the, the kindest, smartest um, men out there. He just, uh, I just and love his spirit with, about him. What? The other one's Geisler? Yeah, Geisler is not the kind-hearted guy. Um, that is not his claim to fame. Um, Wayne Grudem is, is just great. So those are my two favorites right the there. The Grudem is that he's writing for the layman. Absolutely true. He, he is not writing. A lot, a lot of commentaries, if you get into the problem with them, is, is that they are writing to other commentators. You know, well, I disagree with so-and-so who said this, that, and the other. Yep. But Grudem uh, writes for us. Yeah. So thank you. Sorry to interrupt you. No, that's good. I think that's 100% right. He's so readable. Um, another one that I love a lot, Jerry was showing you kind of um, a version of this with the study Bibles. So this is a study Bible's introduction on steroids. It's called Talk Through the Bible, and I'll pass this around. And what he does with every book of the Bible is he gives you an introduction. He gives you author, theme, and purpose, keys to the book. And the thing I love almost the best is he gives extensive outlines of the book. So as you go through it, you can find out if you're in the middle of Genesis 27, what's going on there. You know, if you're in the middle of, you know, he gives us like beautiful pictures of outlines. And outlines come from just studying the Bible. So you can create your own outline. In fact, we're going to talk about that later. But if you just want a quick orientation on a book, this is one of my absolute favorites. So when I'm going to start off a book, I always go to this one. It's called Talk. Yeah, you can just hand that around. So that one is just fabulous. And then I have a couple online things. I'm going to hand it back to Jerry here. Um, uh, da, da, da. Have any of you guys messed around with the Bible Project before? Uh, the Bible Project is video one? Yes. Yeah. So the Bible Project is one of my absolute favorite things going. I'm, I'm putting on my birthday list the book version of the Bible Project. They have a coffee table book that has all their um, descriptions of every book of the Bible out there. And I'd like to take just five minutes and give you guys a feel of what the Bible Project does and how it's helpful, especially if you have kids, I think. So we're going to watch one of these real fast on uh, a book that I'm sure none of us spend a ton of time on. So let's see if you guys learn a thing about this particular book of the Bible. I'm going to get over the volume in case it gets loud. All right. Helps if you turn on here. This is Nahum. Oham Nahum. I think I've seen this one. I've seen the Bible Project one. Jonah or Hang on a second. I'm going to get the volume up here. My apologies. There's my volume knob. The volume's up there. And then when I go over here, I should be on. Everybody see that with the light on? No, uh, is this in the way? Can you all see this? Oh, 
that better? Good. Thank you. That is disappointing. Why is the volume? It's one of those things where you wish they had. Right now, media. No. Yeah, it is. But it's just on the website. So what I'll do is I will play with this in the next break, and we'll kick that off. Um, but just one of my absolute favorite tools that I did not check ahead of time. So I will uh, we'll save that for a minute. But that one is just just great. So um, another one that I love a lot is a U version. You guys ever played with that on your phone before? Mm -hmm. So if you haven't played with it, it's an app for your phone. It was done by Open Church in Oklahoma. Uh, I'm sorry, Life Church, Craig Rochelle's Church. And what I love about it is it has reading plans. You can pick whatever reading plan. For example, right now I'm doing a New Testament reading plan using the Bible Project videos. And it tells you every day what to read. But then you can click a button if you feel like it, and you can write down what you enjoyed from that day. And you and everyone who's in a group with you can all interact together on that particular reading plan. So the young adult community is doing this uh, pretty extensively right now, where they're all kind of reading the same passages together. If you're in a life group, if you're in a, uh, a Bible study group on Saturdays, and you want to do this, it's so easy to do using the version app. And again, it's free. Um, and one other thing I will mention, if you are wanting to do more Bible study, like start teaching more and adventuring in different places, uh, there are some great Bible softwares out there. I'm about to, to buy one, and there's um, just some great ones out there. So did you have any other stuff that you brought that you wanted to talk about book-wise? Oh, All right. So let me look at my notes real fast, which I put somewhere over here. Yeah, I'm about to hand it back to Jerry, but I just want to say one other thing um, about this, and that is, you know, how do we get to read the Bible is we need to pick a time. So for me, a lot of times it's a morning time, like around 8.30 after I get to work is a kind of my favorite time. Um, you can also need a place and need to engage your mind. So how many of you guys have a regular time and a place that this happens in your life? So when is yours, Anthony? At night. At night, and then where? Um, on the side of my bed. On the side of it, there you go. <laughs> um, uh -huh. Recently, the past year, I shared this with uh, the men's group. I wake up in the middle of the night and um, start to pray, and I read and contemplate on things, and then go back to sleep. There you go. And so since. Since that has been happening, I just let it continue. I didn't try to reverse it. I'm not tired or anything like that in the morning anyway. So, But God restores that I've sleep said, you lost. Well, if this is going to be the pattern, I'll let that be the pattern. Yeah. Because, um, if I try to change it, it may not work, work out. And plus, I'm real busy during the day. And it seems like at night, that's when everybody's leaving me alone. Amen. What about you, Rosie? So, I have a very long commute, so yes, I listen mm -hmm. um, to the Bible on my way to work. Wonderful. And so I, I, I listen to it, and then I'll probably listen to the same, whether it's um, you know, a certain book, I'll listen to the whole book, mm -hmm. and I'll play it all the way there, and then on the way home, I'll start over and re listen to the same mm -hmm. chapters all over again so that I get it and get it, and then at nighttime, I'll sit down and I'll actually read my study Bible, just mm. some of the notes to better understand 
what it was really saying. Yeah. Um, so if I heard it three or four times that that day or whatever, then I've, I've got a good understanding of what mm-hmm. I heard. I just need to better understand what that word meant. Exactly. Repetition definitely is huge. Someone else had their hand? Yeah. Also, I've got two 15-minute breaks at work. Nice. And I don't always use them depending on workload. But a few months ago, I started using those to like read new version devos and mm-hmm. read scripture and kind of just pray rather than just sitting there like other people. And rather than taking something in that's not really helping me, yeah, you know, use it to feast me, uh, refresh myself. Mm-hmm. At other times in my life, I just like sit down and will like read through like Jerry's said before. Mm-hmm. Some of his sermons, uh, like a, an entire chapter or a, a smaller book, and I kind of go back by, by each uh, chapter if it's like an epistle or Philemon feels achievable. One page, you kind of get through it. Yeah, I'm with you. You know, uh, saying one of my favorite Bible teachers is John Piper. He said, "Reading and understanding the Bible involves lots and lots of interpretation." kind of what Rosie was saying is I'm hearing it I'm hearing the words I'm trying to figure out what is the interpretation and this is where we're headed you know not just in light of the world and culture around us but in reference to other parts of the Bible you know he mentioned uh, that quote earlier about we need to be uh, stewards and um, students of the whole Bible not just John 3 verses 15 to 17 Um, so uh, one other my favorite guy is Michael Heiser. Um, he's got so many interesting thoughts right now. And uh, one of his quotes is, understanding scripture isn't about making it palatable or comfortable to modern readers. Uh, this is an important thing as we're interpreting scripture is not to think, how can I force God to look good to my friends? You know, the goal of interpreting scripture is first to say, what is God actually <coughs> saying? And then later we can we can talk about how to be evangelistic. We first need to just understand God is wanting to say stuff, and we just need to not go too quickly to gloss over some things about Him. I think we do this especially in the area of sin and holiness in our society. We're so quick to talk about God's love, but not often do we talk about God's wrath. And God's wrath is talked about extensively through Scripture. And if we are only focused on God as a God of love and not God of justice or God of holiness or some of the other attributes of God, um, we will miss great parts of um, our understanding of who God is. We're going to spend some time this fall in our in our fall series, small groups, talking about some of these things that are sometimes missed when we focus on God. So I'm going to hand it off to uh, Jerry just to kind of let him go for a little bit, but I always love this quote from Sherlock Holmes that uh, my favorite uh, seminary professor Howard Hendricks would say many times you know you see but you do not observe and he had this passage an exercise he did with every seminary class where Acts 1-8 he would flash up the verse and say okay I want you guys to write down as many observations as you can so we would all write down about 10 observations like great now I want to write do 10 more and you're like 10 more this is one verse you know mm-hmm. well he, wrote, he ended up having I think a list of 320 observations about Acts 1-8 and he said, you just do not realize how much we miss because we don't take the time to really observe. So, Jerry, I'm going to hand it back over to you okay. and let you run. Incidentally, Rosie, picking up on what you said, that you had an opportunity to read, I mean to listen. Mm-hmm. Um, 
let me say this, folks. You may or may not have time to sit down and go in depth, uh, and that may you may be limited in what you can do. You want to do go depth deeper. There's treasure on the surface, but there's a whole lot more treasure underneath. But just hearing the word of God, there is no substitute for that. You are being impacted by listening. Now, I've got all of the Bible on CD, and I've listened to it in my car. And one of the values of that, besides the fact that you are just flat being impacted because you are taking the word of God in, mm -hmm. is that you get a good 30,000 uh, foot view of the overall scripture and understanding of the total chronology when you do that. Mm -hmm. But just reading it, there is no substitute. Uh, if you don't ever read it, uh, you, your, your soul is drying up. Now, you don't have trouble making time for three meals a day uh, for your body, so you sh you've got to understand that this is just as critical for you. If the best way to do it, and I, I like what you said, is you're, she's listening to that on the way to work. Great. It's uh, great. Uh, and, you know, when I, I listened to it, I remember listening to the Psalms and uh, on the way to work, and a guy cut me off. And so I was listening to David, and I just took what David said and applied it to the guy that cut me off. Uh, may a creditor get all that you have and you fall into the pit. <laughs> <laughs> so it just helps you. To That's right. Yeah. Pronounce the curses. One, one well. thing I want to do, real, uh, one thing I want to do very quickly, if I can, and this I want to, uh, before we start looking at means of interpretation, I want to give you another reason why should be reading scripture. Uh, uh, Jonathan gave you very effective uh, basis for why we should be reading the scripture. And I want to pick up on what he's saying uh, real quick. Uh, and I would say what he was teaching is the positive why you need to be reading the scripture. I, I hesitate to call this the negative, but in a sense uh, it is. Uh, and that is that um, Notice that what he said before, a couple of the values that he gave you of reading scripture, studying scripture, is maturity and discernment. And he quoted from Hebrews 5, 14, uh, where he talks about maturity uh, and people have developed discernment, uh, able to discern right and wrong, and, and that's, an, that's an evidence of maturity. And if you're a mature Christian, let me suggest you have a duty to be a discerning Christian. Uh, and maturity should result in discernment. God doesn't, the world says, well, the way you know evil is you experience. God says, no, you don't. You learn to discern evil and avoid it. Uh, and this is one of the values uh, of Scripture. And the problem that we have today, and I'm going to try to move fast, is we are awash in this culture, in the West, in false teaching, false doctrine, uh, aberrant uh, teachings, uh, heresy, and downright blasphemy at times. Mm -hmm. And the problem is some of the most popular, quote, Christian books in the bookstores, Christian bookstores, fit that definition. And people are led right down the garden path because they have no discernment 
The reason they have no discernment is they don't know the scriptures and they don't know what it says. You have a responsibility to know the scriptures uh, on your own. And frankly, and Paul says this, the Christian life is spiritual warfare. And he says in Ephesians 6, 10, uh, he says, finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. And then he proceeds to tell you in verses 11 through 18 how you do that. And he tells you in verse 12 of Ephesians 6, he says, For we war not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the powers, against the spiritual authorities in high places, and the powers of darkness. He lists four categories. I'm not giving you the exact quote. And then he says, therefore, put on the whole armor of God. And in verse 11, he says, first of all, he says, finally, and that's not a P.S. in Ephesians. That's a, what Ephesians has been coming down to. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you might stand against the deceptions of the devil. Because the Christian walk is spiritual warfare. Uh and we just, most people think spiritual warfare is casting out demons and deliverance. It is everything. It is far more than that. Uh, and then Paul says in verse 13, he says, again, put on the whole armor of God uh, that you might, having done all to stand in the day of evil, stand. And I'm not going into the spiritual armor. I mean, I taught that numerous times uh, and there's probably nobody in here who hasn't heard it at least four times but I want to say this to you uh, the first piece of armor is the belt of truth the last piece of armor is the sword of the spirit there are lots of different ideas on what the belt of truth is in the Roman armor it's what held the breastplate on of course we're told in the spiritual armor, the breastplates, the um, righteousness of Christ that we, you know. But what the belt of truth is, is the fundamental doctrines of the faith. And most of you commentators ultimately agree. There's a lot of things you can say about truth. God's word is truth. Uh, Jesus is truth. But ultimately, the belt of truth is the fundamental doctrines of the faith. Uh, and I don't mean secondary doctrines. I mean, you know, atonement, incarnation, all of these things. Uh, if you don't know the fundamental doctrines of the faith, you don't even have the first piece of armor on. And let me give you a book that I think will help you. This is knowing God, and frankly, the value of knowing the doctrine, folks, is God reveals himself in the doctrine, in the great fundamental doctrines of the faith. This is by J.I. Packer. Again, this is written for the layman, like us. It is well-read. It is tremendous to give you a great understanding of the fundamental doctrines of the faith. It is quick and easy to read. As opposed to... Greet him. Greet him. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. 
Now, I, I highly recommend these. Don't misunderstand yeah. me. But a quick understanding of the totality of the great doctrines of the faith. This is one. What was the one you said? Well, the other one would be Chip Ingram's The Real God. He, he kept handing J.I. Packer's Knowing God to his people in his church. And they kept coming back saying, man... You have something easier, <laughs> and so and so he, he wrote a book saying, "I just want people to get this truth." And so it's a purple book. We're actually basing our fall series off um, Chip Ingram's series on knowing God. Well, Jesus himself talked about the fact uh, that uh, spiritual warfare uh, was the uh, example in John seventeen. Let's look at John seventeen twelve real quick. Uh, again, I'm wanting to get through this quickly, but I, I, it's just, I can't tell you how absolutely critical this is. Jesus says this in John 17, 12, he's in the garden, uh, or he may be in the garden, he's praying to the Father uh, before he is arrested. Uh, he says, um, while I was with them, I was keeping them in your name, which you have given me, and I guarded them, and not one of them perished but the son of perdition that the scriptures uh, but the son of perdition so that the scriptures would be fulfilled but now I come to you and there are these things I speak in the world so that they may have my joy made full in themselves I have given them your word and the world has hated them because they are not of the world even as I am not of the world I do not ask you to take them out of the world but to keep them from the evil one. Jesus himself understood that the Christian life is a spiritual battle involving spiritual warfare and rulers and powers and authorities in high places coming against us. And notice what he said, I have given them my word. I've given them your word. Now, the belt of truth being the fundamental... Uh, doctrines of the faith and Jude said this in Jude 3 I had intended to write to you of our common salvation but I have determined that I want to write to you about the need to contend for the faith uh, the word contend there in the Greek means hand to hand combat and the faith is being washed away by all the silly ideas that are going on in the culture right now now the value of knowing fundamental doctrine is protective the belt of truth was for protection. The breastplate was for protection. But the sword of the Spirit, which is also the Word of God, is the weapon which we use against not people, but the enemy. How many of you have been in the military? Any of you? Anthony? Okay. You go through basic training in the military, what they teach you is how to use your weapon. I was in ROTC in college. In those days, it was the M1 rifle. Uh, some people say, no, it wasn't. It was the muzzle loader. You know? <laughs> <laughs> well, that's true, but I don't know. <laughs> they taught you, and they'll tell you, I have a son in law who's in the Marines, and they taught him how to use the M16, how to take it apart blindfolded and put it back together. That's what the scripture is. It's our weapon, and we have to understand how to use it uh, and to take it apart in a sense, not mis misuse it in that way. But everybody with me on this? Because I have to get on to what I'm supposed to be talking about. Um, 
but we'll see. What am I talking about? I, don't I think we're going to go through some actual scriptures and do some interpretation. You observe. want to do that now? That'd be great. Okay. Let's do uh, it. What, what about different words and that sort of sure. thing? Sure. Okay. We can do, you want me to just take a couple of scriptures or yeah. just explain the words? Some, yeah. Some of go. the things of interpretation. Yeah. Which, Either one. I think you got to give some ground rules. <laughs> so a couple things about interpretation first. Uh, and then let's do okay. it. Okay. Uh, Jonathan, let's just talk about some rules to be aware of. And Jonathan bring, brought this up right off the bat, and it is critical. When you get down, sit down to open the Bible, I don't care if you're listening to it on CD or you're about to open the Bible and read it yourself, the first thing you want to do is ask the Holy Spirit to teach you Amen. and to speak to you. Uh, because what makes the difference between intellectual knowledge and experiential knowledge mm -hmm. is revelation of the Holy Spirit directly to you. Let's look at Psalm 119.18. Psalm 119.18. Mm -hmm. Open my eyes that I may behold wonderful things from your law. Mm -hmm. Jeremiah 33.3, which I call God's phone number, J-E-R-333. Jeremiah 33.3. Call unto me and I will answer you and show you great and mighty things which you did not know. Uh, when you start to read the scripture, you want to start, like what Jonathan said, you want to start by asking God uh, through the Holy Spirit to speak to you, to open your heart. Paul says in Ephesians uh, 1.18, I pray that the eyes of your heart will be enlightened so that you may know and know there is personal experiential know, not intellectual know. That, yes, but more than that, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the inheritance of the saints in God, and what is the exceeding greatness of his power made available to you. All those things need to come to you as revelation and they can come through the word because he can use the word to give you that revelation. <coughs> just, you ever been reading something in the Bible and it just bang jumps off the page? Mm -hmm. Okay, all right. Um, another thing to keep in mind when you're studying the scripture. This is a quote from Alex, uh, Alistair Bing, my favorite Scottish preacher. Oh, yes. Anybody here of Alistair Bing? Oh, yeah. Yes. Oh, I yes. love Alistair Bing. He says, always yes. keep in mind the plain things are the main things, and the main things are the plain things. Amen. You start reading books that'll take you off into the weeds because they're off into some... Everybody has this desire for secret little information that gets us off and gets us into this special little key. You get off into trouble when you start getting books like that, and they're all over the place right now. Well, this is the secret to doing this, this, and this. No, the plain things are the main things, and the main things are the plain things. All right. We talked earlier about know the context. Here's a book Jonathan has blown me. Mm -hmm. um, this is an interesting book, the most misused verses in the Bible. <laughs> I've gone through this. Every one of the verses are misused because they are taken out of context give you a quick example. Jeremiah 29 11, for I know the plans that I have for you, plans for good and not evil, mm -hmm. and to give you a future. Okay. In fact, anybody familiar with Babylon B? Yes, oh, yeah. absolutely. It's a, yeah, it's, it's a hilarious. satirical yeah, Christian yes. group. 
And Babylon B, they've got this uh, commentator giving the news, and all of a sudden somebody hands him a note. He reads that. This just in. Theologians have discovered other verses in Jeremiah besides 2911. <laughs> 2911 is talking to people who will not even be born for 70 years because they have been taken away in the Babylonian captivity. And he's saying to those people, when you come back, these are the plans I have for you, not good but evil, to give you a future. Now, it's fine to quote the verse, but that's not what it's saying. It's mm -hmm. not to you, it's to people who were born, who will be born after Jeremiah himself is long gone. So you always want to know the context of the verses, and we always you can bet you hear these people <coughs> cite these little verses often. You can bet they've been taken out of context. Now that's fine if you want to use it, but uh, but just pay attention to the context in which they're written. Um, also, scripture can be is often used to interpret scripture, and I wish that I could. Uh, let me just say that the, when we talk about the main things and the plain things, those plain things and main things are going to be consistent with other scripture throughout the Bible. It's these guys that get these little clever ideas about this verse, but it's the only verse that might say that, and half the time, or even more than half the time, they've misinterpreted the verse or taken it out of context. If the verse they're looking at is contradicted by other verses, you can toss that one in the trash. Because you, uh, the verses, uh, the scripture, the passages are consistent. One of the most amazing things is how consistent the Old Testament is with the New Testament. Why? Because it's written by the same author. And he doesn't contradict himself. Uh, so that's one thing you want to keep in mind. All right. Um, I don't think I want to go into that because we've got to. Let me give you some words to be looking at as you're reading these verses. Uh, one of the most common words that you see, well, I won't say common, but it's an extremely important word, and that's the word therefore. And whenever you're reading scripture, particularly in the New Testament, when you see the therefore, here's what you do you say, hello, there's the therefore. Now, what's the therefore, therefore? <laughs> okay, it has different applications depending on the passage, but generally this is the application. The therefore normally will take what has been taught doctrinally, and the therefore is the introduction to what follows is the application of what's been taught doctrinally. Everybody with me? Mm -hmm. That's not always the case. But therefore is a very important word. Another word for therefore is wherefore. Uh, King James likes wherefore a lot. Uh, for this reason uh, is a therefore uh, is the same thing. Let's look at Matthew. And this is a quick one. Matthew uh, 6. Jesus is speaking in the Sermon on the Mount. Now, this is a short little therefore, because one of the things that you do when you look at a therefore is you start saying, what does it relate back to? And one good way to do it is read scripture beforehand, and then if there, and cut out the scripture in between and go right to the therefore and see if it fits. Everybody with me on that? Mm -hmm. That makes sense? It'll stay. 
Uh, for example, Paul's therefore in um, Ephesians 4.1, he says, Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you uh, to walk in a manner worthy of your calling wherewith you've been called. That, therefore, is extremely important. What does it relate back to? Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, because those were the doctrinal teachings of Ephesians. The therefore in Ephesians 4, 1 is now going to introduce for the next three chapters the application of the doctrine that he taught in the first three, uh, first three chapters. All right, this one's a short one. Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and wealth. That's the doctrine. That's the teaching. Okay, verse 25, therefore, or some translations say, for this reason, I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. For life is not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Now notice that this is an application or an instruction to what he said in verse 24. He said nobody can serve God and mammon because they will love one and hate the other. Why do people get to serving mammon? So often it's in order because they're concerned about their daily necessities of life. That can quickly turn into greed where you want even more than the necessities you need. And so Jesus is saying don't go there because God's aware of what your needs are and these are the more important things and he'll take care of that. So you don't have to worry about pursuing mammon. You can pursue him because he'll take care of that part of it. And the rest of the passage to the end of Matthew 6 goes into great detail. That makes sense, folks? Yeah, Anthony. Uh, also, you'll start making decisions based on money rather than what God says. You will. You know, you, it's a trap. Initially, you start off, well, I'm just concerned about my needs, but it oftentimes goes beyond that. And then you're totally caught up in the world's wealth. And you can't do that and serve God. It's not possible. Jesus says, you know, therefore, don't worry about that because God will take care of this. You can concentrate on him. That's a simple little use of the word therefore in Matthew 6, 25. Uh, but if you start paying attention to the therefore as you're reading and you start saying, no, wait a minute, therefore is introducing something based on what went before. And you start looking at that. That's the way you begin uh, to do a little analysis of it. I hope that makes sense. Mm -hmm. uh, another one, the word for often means because. Uh, let's go to Psalm 86. Uh, he says, incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am afflicted and needy. This is the king of Israel who says he's afflicted and needy. Uh, What's the verse? Uh, I'm sorry, 86.1. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, because for I am afflicted and needy. Preserve my soul, for I am a godly man. See, there's the four. Preserve my soul, because I am a godly man. You, O oh you, my God, save your servant who trusts in you. Be gracious to me, O oh Lord, for to you I cry all day long. He's making argument with God about the things in a sense. He's not arguing with God. He's saying, this is why I'm doing this and crying out to you. This is a tremendous uh, instruction on prayer. The word for, because, when you come across for, uh, say, oh, no, see, that means because, because why? 
that's another example of it. The word but is a contrast uh, that uh, will contrast what went before. We're going to see that in a minute in, in, or, you know, shortly uh, in Psalm 1. Uh, the word so that means uh, for just um, for the reason that I just said. Let's look at Colossians 1. Now, this is not all of the words you can pay attention to. This is just an example. Uh, Colossians 1. Paul's prayer. For this reason, now that would have been a therefore as well. For this reason also, since the day we heard of it, we have not ceased to pray for you. What's he praying? And to ask that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So that. Why are you praying that? So that you will walk in a manner worthy of the Lord, that you will please him in every respect, that you will bear fruit in every good work, and you will increase in the knowledge of God. That's why I'm praying for you. So the prayer ends in verse 9 and picks up with why is he praying that for you? What is he wanting to see happen as a result of this prayer for you? Everybody with me? Mm -hmm. Everybody awake? Yeah. <laughs> So I think I think maybe a good summary is you need to go into this with the good questions to ask of the passage. You know, why is that there? Why is that list there? That, why? That, yes, that's basically what we're going to be coming to. When you read the scripture, be prepared to ask questions. Uh, and we're going to give you some questions you can be asking. Now, understand that uh, we all start out... Uh, if you're not used to doing this, it takes a little practice to do it, but uh, you begin to look at things, and you have, the problem that so many people have is they read right over something and they never think about it. Mm -hmm. uh, and never say, well, why does it say that? Uh, Paul says that you would be one in the bond of peace. Really? Why does he say bond of peace? Why didn't he say bond of love? Uh, you get in the habit of asking certain questions, and a lot of times I'm reading something I don't understand it and I'll say Lord I don't get it I don't understand it I'll look down in the notes in my study Bible it doesn't cover it either so then I say Lord why does what does this mean it's amazing in a day or two he'll tell me <laughs> uh, you know all of a sudden I'm talking to somebody and they say oh got it that's what it was so you have this ongoing walking relationship with the Lord and his word in him and asking him to show you then when you have questions if you can't answer them through the word you ask him to show you he'll show you mm -hmm. uh, you get pretty excited when you suddenly realize the Lord just talked to you mm -hmm. uh, that's the creator of the universe incidentally. <laughs> mm -hmm. but he cares about you and so he's happy to talk to you about it and he's glad you asked mm -hmm. okay uh, another thing to take a, uh, take a look at and we'll see this in Psalm 1 but a lot of times, Scripture will list things. Uh, and when you see a list, and it takes a little bit of, of uh, reading and, and going through this, ask yourself, why does it occur in this order? Uh, for example, let's look over in James real quick. James 3.17. But the wisdom from above is first peaceable. I'm sorry, first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering without hypocrisy. Why doesn't it say that the wisdom from above uh, is first peaceable, reasonable, gentle, full of mercy, 
pure, good fruits, unwavering, without hypocrisy. Why is it in the order that it's in? Ask yourself that. And the Spirit sometimes will start to tell you that, or you may be able to understand that. A good example of a major list is the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are they that mourn. Blessed are the meek. Blessed are they that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Blessed are the merciful. Blessed are the uh, pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. The Holy Spirit and Jesus himself did not list that group of Beatitudes haphazardly. Each one comes in the order in which it must come. The, each beatitude following it is flowing out of the one before it. Everybody with me? Mm -hmm. Blessed are the poor in spirit. What's that mean? It means blessed are those who realize spiritually they are a zero with the circle rubbed out. Uh, any circles in here? Rubbed out circle? Every one of us are afflicted and needy, just like David said in his uh, Psalm 86, 1. Blessed are those who are afflicted and needy and know it, for the kingdom of heaven is theirs. Blessed are they that mourn. Uh, they should be comforted. Now, it's not really intended to deal with somebody who's just lost a loved one, but it's okay to use it for that. You mourn because you now realize you're afflicted and needy. Blessed are the meek, the gentle. That results from poor in spirit and mourning. You realize what you are. You mourn over that, and now your attitude is one of meekness, and you stop judging other people because you know you aren't any better than they are. Mm -hmm. And Peter is a beautiful example of the first three. Denies Christ three times, mm -hmm. runs out, and weeps <coughs> bitterly. He understands who he is, and he is a zero with the circle rubbed out. He weeps bitterly. He mourns over the realization of what he is, and Jesus... Uh, after the resurrection, says, Peter, do you love me more than these others? Lord, you're a fond friend. He's meek. So it continues to work. And, of course, what comes after meekness is blessed are those that hunger and thirst after righteousness. Why? Because you know what you are and you don't have it. Now, always try to pay attention to lists like that because the Spirit usually, I won't say that it always, but usually lists things in an order that it has particularly chosen. He's not haphazard in what he says. Okay. Um, here's some questions you could be asking. Now, Jonathan's actually got more than I've got. And so I would add whatever he has. You you can put it up on the screen. Yeah. Uh, let me see here. I think we could just, just write some on this whiteboard for a minute. So let me pull this down just for a sec. Let me give while he's doing that. Let me give you some basics, uh, just to be asking. Now, this what you want to do. You don't need to turn it on. What you want to what you're going to be doing in evaluating a passage is you you're going to start by trying to make certain observations. Uh, this is how you begin to sort of get below the surface. Uh, remember, there's a lot of treasure on the surface, but there's more beneath the surface. We're going to take a passage, uh, we'll probably have to take it the next hour, uh, that says, first of all, just read it. Now, I'm talking about a small passage. I'm not talking about the Book of Romans. Uh, what we're going to start off by doing is looking at us about five or six verses in Luke uh, 5. And what we want to do is we, 
what you want to do, you go through the passage and you want to ask who's in the passage, what's the passage about, what does it tell you about men, and particularly the men or women listed in the passage, or what does it tell you about God, Jesus Christ or the Holy Spirit, five, what's the application to me, what truths or principles can I gain from this? And hopefully if you've begun to do observations, you're going to start picking up that. But it takes a little practice. Everybody see what he's saying? This will be the shortened version, and then I've got a longer one we'll do later. Um, one thing, a good example of picking up a principle is Jesus' parables. Uh, Jesus was the master teacher. He will start a story in his parables. He'll start a story off that's common, ordinary. Uh, but then he will exaggerate it. A uh, simple example is uh, give quietly. Don't sound a trumpet before you give. Uh, the reason he exaggerates toward the, as he gets into the parable, the vineyard keepers, you know, uh, they wind up killing the owner's son and the owner winds up wiping them out. All right, that's an exaggeration. Uh -huh. Why would anybody in their right mind kill the owner's son? The reason he exaggerates the common, <coughs> the common stories in this parable is so you can easily pick out the principle. Uh, give quietly. Don't sound the trumpet before you give so everybody can see what you're doing. Uh, the, the principle's real easy. His parables are like that. Mm -hmm. A lot of them are, are exaggerated so you can easily spot the principle. And then you apply the principle to other situations. Okay. Um, let's, let's do this maybe. Let's go ahead and if you guys have a passage you want to do, we want to do one of these like, a few of these in the room. So who wants me to assign them one and who wants to grab their own? Assign? Okay. So we were thinking earlier Psalm 1 would be a good one. So how about we have like... Um, you know, let's have like maybe Pete, Joy, maybe this side. Let's do, maybe sit and have two different sides. So, Philip, you guys in the back, two rows, and then you guys jump in with Pete and Joy. And what's your name again? Lauren. Lauren, sorry, Lauren. You guys jump in together, just group two or three. And so maybe this side, do Psalm 1, and you guys decide if you want to do just the first verse you know, about a tree or you want to do multiple verses. And then maybe this side, let's do a New Testament passage. So, um, Acts 1-8 is the one that Howard Hendricks always did with us. So if you guys want to do Acts 1-8 over here. And we want to come back in a minute. So you guys group up, Austin, you, and the, these first two rows. And then maybe like two groups in the back, Anthony and all you guys. Um, and I want you to kind of write it out. And I want you to look for things like key terms, key people. Who is it written to the audience? Key conjunctions. And then what does this tell me about man? What does this tell me about God? And then we're going to come back and share that in a minute. But first we're going to break and then we come back in five minutes. Go ahead and just start grabbing it right now. Answer these questions and then we'll give you some more questions as well. Make sense? Mm -hmm. All right, go. So you guys had Psalm 1 with a tree firmly planted or oh, yeah. somewhat planted. Verse 1. Verse 1. Psalm 1-1. Oh, okay. Psalm 1-1. One, one. So let's just say what are some key terms or people that you guys came up with on this afternoon? Uh, well, for key people we had listed for man Wicked, sinners, scoffers, mockers, ungodly, and scornful. Very good, good. Yeah. Now, if you wanted to learn more about some of those terms, where might you go? Blue Letter Bible. Blue Letter Bible is a great place. 
Bible dictionary is an insanely good place. Okay, we're gonna we're gonna hand out the Bible dictionaries. again there's the first first one there's a list mm-hmm. so why do we start with the wicked go to the center and then go to the scoffer what do you think Sin never remains Static. at the same level. Yeah. It always gets worse. Yep. What's a scoffer again? The scoffer mocker. would be the, the mocker. Yes, the mocker. You know, uh, you, you see that all the time. Well, I wouldn't touch those creatures. The Tonight Show. Yeah. It's a lot of judgmental. Yeah, very judgmental. Yes. Combining bitterness with the ridicule. Mm-hmm. Yep. Good. Mm-hmm. Very good. I mean, you could also think wicked is who I am. Sinner is my relationship with God. Scoffer, mocker is my relationship with man. Okay. You know? Good. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, see, you're just asking yourself questions and you're looking at it and you're coming up with good stuff. I always get caught up on like the yeah. first question. It's like going to each word. Incidentally, what do you think it means to delight in his word? To enjoy. What did you say? To be excited about. And when you delight to do something, I mean, maybe you like to play golf. Uh, ladies, I might have left you out there. But you can hardly wait to get to it. Yeah. You like to, this this guy apparently can hardly wait to get to it. Yeah. Uh, and to spend time with it. It's, it's, in other words, the word here involves his thinking capacity. He's meditating. But it brings in his emotion. He delights. So it's it's not just up here, it's it's everywhere. It's and he exercises his will because he chooses to do it. He exercises his mind because he meditates day and night. Mm-hmm. And he is emotionally involved in it because he delights. So his whole soul, mind, will, and emotion is involved in that movement. So I think a good thing is to try and take all that and then try to create some sort of a interpretive paraphrase on your own. Like, I'm going to write this out as if I was saying this. And then you want it to be as accurate as you can. So this is like your, you know, like if you don't know what scoffers means, like what does it look like? Well, 
okay, I'm going to think people who are just mocking, you know, or, or think of synonyms that really fit. You might have to go to the Bible dictionary to find a good synonym. Um, but the whole goal of, like, maybe I should ask this, what do you guys think is the major goal of studying the Bible like this? Like, just a couple verses at a time, interpret it. What's the goal? To answer the question, so what? So what? That's exactly right. So what? Because you, the goal of all this, there's this verse in James where it talks about a man who reads the word and doesn't do it. It's like a man who looks in a mirror and immediately forgets what he sees. So it's like, what is the point of having a mirror if you're going to look at it and immediately forget what you saw? So the whole point of this is that we are to interact with God about, hey, does my heart delight in your word? Because does it blesses me and delights us. Where my heart doesn't delight in your word, I'm just like really troubled my heart doesn't seem to delight I want that blessing so God how do I get that blessing and and I'm going to dive in and I'm going to pray that you'll change my heart so that I will be delighting in your word and in your law night and day and all of a sudden I have an application and so my application might be God I'm going to daily ask for you to help me delight in your word another person's application might be oh gosh you know I'm just really struggling with just mocking people that are different than me you know, we, we had a season on our staff where we were just kind of ripping into Joel Olstein for a while and certain members of our staff team. And and after a while, we were just like, you know what? We ought not be mocking other people, even if they teach differently than us. And so we just said, guys, that just doesn't need to be part of our team. You know, we don't want anyone on the team. So Gary likes the term, I'm not a fan. So if someone comes to me and says, hey, have you heard this particular prosperity gospels? Podcast, I'll be like, oh, you know, I, I'm just not a fan of that one. And that's what we do because we don't want to sit in the seat of mockers over other people claiming to follow Christ. Mm-hmm. So those are some two applications. And I think one of my things is real important that there is one interpretation. There's many applications. So this is where one of the things that gets very nervous to me is when people say, oh, there's just different ways of interpreting that passage. And that is not really true. Uh, there is one authorial intent, and it may take a lot of work on our part to find out what the author's intent was. But when David wrote that, he wasn't just meaning it could mean 700 things. When David wrote that, and the inspiration of the scripture, uh, of the Holy Spirit, he was meaning one thing. There was one interpretation, and then we have a ton of different ways to apply it. But it is not true that every passage can be interpreted a ton of different ways equally validly. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Um, so what would be an example of an, of an application for you guys as you kind of spend some time with that? Well, I was going to, my yeah. my little analogy that I came up with, my mom says it all the time, lay down with dogs, wiggle the fleas. And That's so true. sort of don't get comfortable, like he says, in the seat of, mm-hmm. you know, mockers or, you know, the scornful or, the, you know, so it's like don't get comfortable, you know, in that path or in that seat of becoming, you know, of, yeah. coming down, walking down a path of sin. So that was just something I kind of came up with. That's dead on right. I'd say for our young adult community, that's huge. Who your peers are shapes who you are, and there's no way to not go down that road. What, why do you think the psalmist compares the guy that spends time in Scripture with a tree? Hmm. Because the tree's growing, right? Yeah, what do you get when you look, think about a tree? What do you get? The ah. branches? 
the main branches, the root. Okay. The root. The root. Yeah. Where is the root located in this song? Now, you guys didn't get to read it, so. By the river. Where? By the river. By the river. By the river. Uh, what do you think of when you think of a tree, like an oak tree or an elm? It follows the water. It follows the water. It's because it's located. And what's running water in the scripture? Uh, you know, huh? It's the spirit. So he is located in the spirit as a tree. A tree is solid, mature. Everything Jonathan was saying about why you study scripture at the beginning. Uh, spiritual depth, maturity, discernment. This tree bears fruit. Now, well, how did they compare the guy that's the tree? How is the wicked compared to him? Listen, also trees can withstand storms. And the wicked is what? Like what? This is beyond where you all were going. The wicked is chaff. What's chaff? Deadwood. You know, you know when, it, when they had wheat and they were they would throw it up in the air and the wind would blow away the chaff. The chaff produces nothing, it's worth nothing, and it doesn't take much but a little breeze to blow it away. Whereas the tree produces fruit, it's solid, it's mature, and it withstands storms. So I have a question then because I'm still in the early process of learning all this, right? Mm -hmm. But for like for me, I didn't know what like chaff would have meant. So is that something where like the Bible dictionary would yeah, have came in or is that something I would have Google? Good, good. See, and, and you're asking the question, see. You, you are asking what, somebody <coughs> asked what's a scoffer. What did you say? What, what were you saying? He was looking, I thought he was looking for the Bible dictionary. So oh. Sure. That's, see, that's a, that's a great comment. And who asked oh, me what's a scoffer? Yeah. That's the way you do it. Scoffer yeah. isn't in there, by the way. Well, it is or it isn't. It is not, and mocker isn't either. Well, let's write a letter to that. Oh, I am. <laughs> chaff isn't here, so chaff isn't here. Yeah, chaff's in this yeah. one, but I guess. Mocker. Let's see if Jerry's got a better one than I do. Yeah, no, you're right on. So that's the way you do it. Yeah. Don't but feel, it does, that don't feel dumb for asking the question. That's why you asked the question. And the NIV doesn't say scoffer. Oh, uh, okay. Um, NIV does say mocker, and mocker is not in there. Well, that is unfortunate. That's why the NIV is the nearly <laughs> So let's skip to the other side of the room because you guys are feeling left out. So you guys, serious? Lay it on us. On the U version of the well Bible, if you click on the verse and you yep. hit compare, you can choose which versions you want to compare. You can nice. see all the versions mm -hmm. of that verse. Side by side. Yep. So you can kind of do your way of doing it at your Bible study. Yeah, it's a lot, a lot easier. Uh, it's bang, 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 bang. You, you know, you can have the NIV and yep. NASB and all, and you can see the verse in all the different translations. Is that the so blue letter that you're looking at, or is it a different? Uh, it's U version. It's, it's just a different program. Oh, okay, good. It's also got footnotes on there too. If there's a like an ad version or something that's got the footnotes, it's part of that. I would say it's a different verse. If it's different, you know, versions like you said, then. It might have a different name for that word instead of mocker. Maybe it's a softer. Mm -hmm. One of those words is mm -hmm. instead of the other. One, one other mm -hmm. thing on your psalm, notice that it has two aspects. Maturity, it's tree. Discernment, does not walk in the counsel of the wicked. Yeah. Does not stand in the way of the sinner. Does not sit in the seat of the scoffer. Mm -hmm. 
So there's a negative benefit, positive benefit to Scripture. Uh, and this psalm is one of the best in the psalms to do that. Amen. All right, you guys, Acts 1-8. Mm-hmm. So let's talk about key terms, key people, key places, key audience. What's going on in Acts 1-8? Nothing's going on. I think is you'll receive. Receive. Very good. Power. Well, that was. There we go. Receive power. Keep going. What else is going on there? Cheers. Observing stuff. Witness. Witness. Jerry gets excited whenever we use these court terms. My hourly charge goes up. (laughs) (laughs) So, upon, kind of an action word. What's that all say? Remotest part of the earth. Okay, we got we got a remotest part. So we got a sequence. Remember, Jerry is always into like lists and stuff. So give me like a a few lists from here. We'll put key places in here because it's kind of people. What are what's like a list you might find? Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. Jerusalem. Is that significant that it goes Judea? Yeah. Samaria. It's like local. And Timbuktu. Outside of that. It's my paraphrase. So at this point, if you guys are not from the Middle East, this would be Arlington. This would be DFW. Or even farther, this might be Mexico. Oh, okay. And this might be China, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that, that's kind of a, a progressive, if you looked on a map, kind of the regional idea of what's going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, I went straight to interpretation, mm-hmm. to application, some of that. But mm-hmm. uh, so what are some other things you might you might see? And then kind of tell me, like, what you thought, what does this tell me about man? What does this tell me about God, this passage? Well, it's, it's talking about man being expected to do something. Amen. Mm-hmm. We're expected to do something when? When the Holy Spirit yeah. comes. Yeah. Yeah. When he comes. So once we've received power, then we're supposed to go do. Mm-hmm. So once you receive power, you will be my witness. Oh. Mm-hmm. I was about to say, go do what? But you got there. So go be a witness. Mm-hmm. Witness to what? Witness to Oh, this one, mine says in, so witness to the. Yeah, ours says right. in Judea. I, I, was, I was thinking as far as like the passage connection, mm-hmm. like mm-hmm. Jesus and his ministry. This is about as far as I can think in ends the earth. What a witness does is, uh, and this may apply here, but also apply in court. A witness tells what he knows. Mm-hmm. Yeah. He doesn't tell what he's, he, he tells what he knows. Even a witness today who is walking with Jesus is not going by hearsay. He is going by what the Lord has told him. Mm-hmm. It says, be my witness. Yeah, mm-hmm. exactly. Specifically to, to Amen. The, the New Testament hangs on this verse. It's uh, this, this is an extremely significant verse. All of Acts flows out of this verse. And Acts Acts has not ended yet. We're in Acts 29. 
hopefully we'll finish it off in the next couple of decades. We'll see. <laughs> we're getting close. We're getting close to the ends of the earth. Every you know people group having a witness. We're getting closer. Our, our church is sending out people to hopefully do our part and finish this thing. I think one of the things that just was impactful to me, so let's move into application just for a minute. So what are some applications that you might have as you think about this, this verse? to be witnessed to people we run into. Yeah, I think one application is be alert for opportunities. Maybe be prepared to be a witness. I mean, some of the things I, I'm, I got on a plane uh, and I'm like, someone next to me asked me what I do. Well, that's really an opportunity to share about God, right? If I'm prepared <laughs> and not tired and not, you know, in a bad mood. So, so these are these kinds of things that these happen around us so all the say time. None of, none of your business if you're in the <laughs> I say that I sue friends and neighbors, but it rarely gets me where I need to be. I'm a cashier at Albertsons, and I'm always like, mm. I'll say something oh, like, man. have a blessed day. Or, so great. Just kind of fishing a little bit, yeah. just throwing things out there and... It's funny, you say that stuff, and all of a sudden, someone will say, you know, I don't know God real well, but I'm just really having a hard day. Would you pray for me? And you're like, and of course I say, yes, I'll pray for you. But then I also think, do you want to know God better? You know, I think, you know, hey, do you, you, you act like I'm, I'm this person, the only person that can pray for you. Can I help you know how you can pray to God for yourself whenever you need him? And just those things, you know, can I kind of step into those moments to be a witness? When people say certain things, I'll say, um, like they're having a bad day, and I'm like, a good day. God got you out of bed this morning. Mm -hmm. You're having a good day. Yeah. That's great. What are some other applications from this verse? Try to save others, or, you know, like they can know God the better way than, uh, you know, you, you know, sometimes you tell them they're on the, like, you know, I work at Walmart, and they said, oh, man, at least you got a job. There are a lot of people out there that don't got no job. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Living on the street, you got a roof over your head, and you, know, you got to be at least glad you're working while you're all sad and all that. So, we need to switch our key verse into uh, do everything without grumbling or complaining. Sometimes it might be a way. It's like, guys, we're going to focus on this verse for a while, some application around this one. That is, right. the, that is the only verse that is not inspired. <laughs> Dude, there's times when I'm like, that's not good. Um, I, I just think one of the things that is important to me about this, uh, this is a personal application just in the climate that we live, is God cares deeply about not just the in crowd, but people from all people groups and all nations mm -hmm. and all languages. And says, my plan and my heart is for people from DFW, from Mexico, from Syria, from China, from Iraq, from Iran, <coughs> for them to hear about me. And that is just an important thing to remember because sometimes I think um, we get caught up in things. We just forget about God's heart for the nations. And so it's just important, like, are we doing our part to reach beyond just Jerusalem, the people that look like me, that talk like me, that have English as their first language? And are we willing to move into some of these other places? So that's, a, that's an application that I would have for my own heart today. So for me, I, I took the same thing because um, our says from the remotest parts of the world. Yeah. So I didn't take it like to the end, meaning everything. Mm -hmm. I took it from big 
like metropolitan, yeah, right, to remotest as in Mansfield, the smallest totally kind of <laughs> you know, yeah. part that nobody Mansfield. knows about. Mm. So I kind of looked at it, yeah, the other way, like the in crowd, as far as like you know, Houston, Houston yes, you know, popular places mm-hmm. to places that don't have running water. Amen. Let me, let me give you. Jim Rawson is, is in our men's group on Saturday. This is the way the men's groups operate. And Phil's been in the men's group. We fun, different people have different observations of the passage we're looking in. And the result is, is when the observation is shared, the rest of us are instructed. And somebody will hear an observation and suddenly realize something and we'll actually take that observation and build on it with another observation Uh, because that's the value of group study and we're talking individual study but group study like we're doing here this this morning is also very beneficial and very effective amen i got one other question i want to ask if you're unless you no go for it Uh, let me ask both groups what is the connection of Acts 1 8 to Psalm 1? Mm-hmm. Is there a connection? There's always a connection. <laughs> okay. Depends in the Bible. I like that one. <laughs> it's in the Bible. It's got to connect. The Bible says. Both the 8th verse, the first chapter. Right? Yeah, you said Psalm 1 8? No, Psalm 1, uh, the Psalm, and Acts 1 8. The group on this side with Psalm 1, mm-hmm. you guys had Acts 1 8. Are the two connected? The river is the Holy Spirit. Good, Phil. Good. Anybody else? So. They didn't read each other's passages, so I go find what the other pastor says. Mm. It's tougher to cross-reference. Mm. Yeah, it is. It's it's not easy. Let me uh, Phil state, but the Holy Spirit is the common connection. Mm-hmm. But the Word of God is uh, also involved here. If you're going to be a witness in the power of the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. it's important that your life measure up to what you're witnessing about. Mm-hmm. If your life doesn't fit what you're witnessing about, you'll do more damage than good. Mm-hmm. Psalm 1 tells you how your life is put together. The tree, the avoiding, in the power of the Holy Spirit, you witness. Mm-hmm. The two are connected. I would take that too, like in our verse, that um, I took it to mean that God was confident, like he already had the plan. Mm-hmm. That tree bears fruit. We witness, we bear fruit. You know, there's a lot of, actually, the more we talk about it, the more you'll see connections to it. But the Old Testament and New Testament are just like this. They, they are not this book and that book. They are like this. Uh, now, the connection's not always that, that clear. Uh, 
but it the Holy Spirit wrote both and you begin to see that underlying uh, stream of water under the surface of both Old and New Testament because they're they're written together. It gets pretty exciting when you start really getting into it. Okay. So I think what we were thinking we would do next is we would grab some of these misused verses in the Bible um, and kind of assign a couple of these and do a couple of these. And um, so why don't we have, this is a good one since uh, Jerry just finished this in his class. So why don't this group do Philippians 4.13, hey. great bumper sticker, sticker passage. <laughs> and then... Um, I don't know, do you have a preference for this one? I mean, I'm thinking Proverbs 22.6 comes to mind. Oh, let's do an Old Testament. This is a good one. Uh, let's do 2 Chronicles 7.14 over here. This is one that I used to sing growing up in high school. Um, they had a Seaman Curse Chapman song they wrote for this song. So this side, 7 Chronicles, 2 Chronicles 7.14. 7.14. Uh-huh. And this side is Philippians 4.13. And things to watch out for, um, there's a reason why these are misused passages. Because they're kind of harking back to what Jerry was saying earlier, context, context, context. So to do this correctly, you will need to not just read the bumper sticker passage, or the you'll need to read a, maybe if you look, see a conjunction like, therefore, man, I broke it. I have to uh, get you guys to fix this. <laughs> that is unfortunate. I'll play with this. That's no lawsuit. Right? I will need a lawsuit. Um but you're going to go through it for key conjunctions. If you see you know, any kind of connecting words, you want to find out why they're there. You want to look before and after. You want to ask questions like, who is this written to? So remember earlier we said if you're in a book, you might look at the beginning of your study Bible, and you might say, okay, who is this written to? Um, when they hear this, what are they supposed to do? Those kinds of things. So ask some questions about those two. Group up in your same groups of two or three. And uh, we'll see what you guys come up with while I try and fix this screen. Okay, guys, let's let's pull it back, and you guys can share. So we had one group with Philippians, I think. Another group had Chronicles. So let's let Chronicles go first because the other day we had you guys go first last time. So Chronicles passage, what was it? And some key terms. I can't write them on the board, unfortunately, because I broke the screen. But uh, what are some key ideas, key principles, and interpretations you came up with? I only read that one verse. That's okay. So in that one verse, tell me what you saw. Just, just Would a, you read the verse to us? Yeah, read the okay. verse to the other side. I have ESV, and it says, If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and will forgive their sin and heal their land. So kind of a famous verse that many of us have heard. So... What are some key groups, key words, key ideas as you just observe and kind of head towards an interpretation of what this author had in mind when he, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, wrote this verse? Well, in my, um, in my text, it's half of a sentence. So it's not even a full thought. Mm -hmm. Where talking about the, the heavens being shut up, no rain, the locusts are devouring the land. Like very good. A, a pestilence among my people. And if my people well, it doesn't say and online, but I'm just kind of thinking mm -hmm. if my people who are called by my name humble themselves, pray and seek my face, ways, then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. So 
Very good. It's helpful to read a whole sentence, right? <laughs> yeah. So yeah. if you have one verse and someone's banking a whole in one verse and you notice that it starts mid-sentence, you should read the prior sentence. Mm -hmm. I think it's also true if it's a paragraph. Mm -hmm. You're catching a verse in the middle of a paragraph. Read the whole paragraph. Well, and like say, what is the... Of a, of, a, of a situation mm -hmm. or a discussion or a dialogue or any, any of that. Yeah. Yeah, very yeah. audience, very good. Yeah, of course. And who is he talking to? Is he actually keep going to further back? Yeah, right. right. And why is he talking about that? Mm -hmm. And it's going yeah. back to he's talking with Solomon because Solomon says finish the house of the Lord. Very yeah. good. And yeah. now with oh, so he's kind of telling us he's gonna or he could and he will, you know, unleash the locusts and, and he'll do all these things, unleash his wrath. Mm -hmm. Why would he do that? I think he's, he's also, with, in relation to Solomon, he's sort of like Jeremiah 29, 11. He's warning them what can happen mm -hmm. if they get off track mm -hmm. and then telling them what they have to do if they do. To me, it was like the list. Mm -hmm. This is what I can do and I will do, but if you do this. Right. Because now mm -hmm. he's saying, if you yeah. seek my okay. face. Mm -hmm. So it kind of starts out with the and and goes into yeah. Incidentally, the Puritans uh, and the Pilgrims were very uh, sensitive to this principle. And if they found themselves in a uh, drought, the first thing they did was call a fast and get on their knees. So one of the things I think is helpful, they, they taught me in seminary, um, is that all scripture is for us, but not all scripture is to us. So I'm very nervous about using the word um, the Bible says without a context of who the audience is. Because um, there's, uh, according to Hebrew tradition, there's 613 commands under the Sinai covenant given in the Old Testament from all sorts of things. So if you Google what does the Bible say, you'll come across these lists of 613 commands that were given to God's people. The question is, who are those given to? And are we supposed to obey those or not obey those today? Um, and all sorts of interesting things in there. So when you come across a passage like this, it's important to first say, who is the my people in this passage from the mindset of the writer? So he didn't know about the church. The church didn't exist. The church was a mystery in the Old Testament. So the church can't be my people. So who would be the my people that would be in the mindset of this author when he wrote this? Israel. Yeah. It would be Solomon and Solomon's people. Mm -hmm. the, the kingdom of Israel. So Israel was hearing this under their covenant relationship with God. And, and all this is under that kind of a filter. Now, as you go through the verse, you know, we talk about all this stuff about locusts and pestilence and what, you know, there's things in Israel history. So um, it's just important that we first do an interpretation of what is this being said to Israel? And then how can we move to a place where we can maybe find a principle that would apply to us today? So what are some ideas on specifically what is said to Israel first? And then how might we pull out a principle generally because God doesn't change that might apply to us today. So what is what does this passage say about Israel that they are to do? 
My daughter has the hardest time with this. I'm like, Grace, I want you to repeat after me. You were wrong. It's the hardest thing in the world sometimes for us just to admit, God, we were wrong. We made a wrong choice. We didn't stumble. We didn't accidentally fall into this idolatry. We just, you know, we were overslept one day and ended up in this place. You know, God, we were wrong. We repent of this. That's a huge thing. What are some other things he says to do? Seek the face of the Lord, which is like not only cry to him, but seek to understand what he has to say on this matter. Mm -hmm. To either through prayer or reading scripture, which I guess for that age would have been Older Testament. Mm -hmm. Psalm 1, I mean, different places, you know, delight in the law of the Lord and the the scriptures, all this kind of stuff. Yeah. Turn from your wicked ways. That's not like this weekend I'm going to turn from it. No, it's like stop. I want you to tear down these idols. I want them burned. I want them smashed. I want this out of your whole world here. Mm -hmm. Um, And then after you do this, then something will happen. Mm -hmm. So... Um, this is a one that I it was part of the National Day of Prayer in America, and I had people like all claiming this verse, and we had people praying this verse. And in a sense, let's talk also about this. We don't want to get to a place where we're mocking people who at a heart level are trying to pray the scriptures. This is a bad place. So the goal of all this is not to say, look how stupid those other people are. Right. The goal of this is to say, God, we want to first understand what you're saying to this people in this time. And then we want to step back and say, what does this teach us about God? The question, what did we learn about God looking around man? Because the God of the Old Testament is the same as the God of the New Testament. And so if God did this for them, what might he do for us? But we have to be careful not to say things like, oh, God will heal our land. Well, the church doesn't have land. You know, we're not like we believe like this is our land. You know, we are part of a spiritual nation. Now, Israel's part of a different kind of nation, but we're part of a spiritual nation. So those kind of things are real important. Do you want to say something, Jerry? <laughs> Sorry, my phone was turning on an alarm. Um, so I think that is just one of the key things for me, and, and this book is replete with that kind of stuff, is the context of who the audience is matters so much. So one of the things that's helpful is when someone says, hey, we ought to fast and, and to call our nation <laughs> back to the Lord because if we do that then God will bring revival Um, one of the things I would ask is just kind of what verse are you pointing to you know God might bring revival but if you're saying God will bring revival what verse are you pointing to because if they go to this passage I would say well this passage is about Solomon and the temple and God might bring revival he might choose to do that I'm praying for revival but if God chooses not to bring revival it's not because he lied if God chooses not to heal our land, it's not because he lied. Um, and so those are the kind of important things to know about Old Testament passages brought into New Testament eyes is many of the, the passages are really promises to the nation of Israel. And I'm not Jewish, so I don't get to just get all the promises made to national Israel and apply them to me. That's not something we teach in this church. So, so audience matters and context matters. Um, 
so anyways, that's just one of those. But we do want to come in with a, with a humble heart and not say, look how those people just didn't know basic right. Bible study methods. And, things. and I think a, a common just thread through people misinterpreting or taking out of context is they, they like the nice parts of Scripture. Like, <laughs> right. This sounds really good. Yes. And so, like, it's a part of what it says. Very. That's very and true. I'm not, like, bashing people for doing that, but... I think this is one of those verses. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it says, when I shut up the heavens so there's no rain, or command the locusts to devour the land. You're like, what? God, God might stop the rain. God might like, you. God might like eat my crops. What in the world? You know, we don't talk about that God very much. It's the loving, generous, you know, soft God. You know, that's the one we're thinking of ourselves like. This is this is tough stuff. So we gave you guys the um, the NBA verse of the year, um, Philippians. So um, watch you guys. Kind of, Share some thoughts on that. Well, I grew up, this was my favorite verse. Awesome! It like, it, is it still? Did you say Philippians? <laughs> 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 yeah. Good. It's a wonderful and, and, verse. And, uh, and it's for us. I'm glad, yeah, yeah. It, and I'm glad we're talking about this because I, mm. you know, it was given to me and, and you know, I took it out of context and mm. it very easily is taken out of context on this day and I, I, I see I see now how it is because we were discussing how Paul you know he's he's locked up and he's talking to them about you know this secret that he's learned this you know kind of what he's he's done um, what God has given them him the ability to do in the highs and the lows regardless when he's hungry when he's starving you know when he's full you know God you know, gives him, um, he's content. And so then it comes into verse 13 saying, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So Mm -hmm. that's the key point. But if you're not reading before or after that, he's giving them the context of saying, Hey, you know, it doesn't matter what I have, what circumstances I go through. I'm content either way, because I know that it's, this is all his plan. Mm -hmm. And, um, and so I guess, for me, when I really thought about it, I see how it can be taken out of context because when, when people read it, or at least when I read it, it was kind of like, well, I can do anything I want to, and God's going to support it, and he's going to be there for me. And so kind of, you know, they were talking about how, you know, that, that job opportunity or that, you know, that vacation we want to go to or, you know, the, you know, this competition I'm going to, you know, get into, you know, I can do all things. So I can do it. And God's going to help me. Kind of yeah. like you know, your needs, your desires, and your wants. God's got that. He, he's in complete alignment with your needs. Mm-hmm. And that's not how it works. It becomes more of like a self-achievement sort of thing. And this is just yep. about me. Yep. And that's why that I stands out so much. Is I can do all things. Mm-hmm. So then it becomes more about what we're capable of and mm-hmm. not what he's capable of. So all things then would be related to the context of where God may place him in mm-hmm. any given situation. Interestingly enough, this doesn't show up, but uh, where he says, I have learned to be content, uh, what he's actually saying there, the the English translation isn't the best, what he's actually saying is, I've learned to be independent of my circumstances, no matter what they are. Mm -hmm. And so, in Christ, I can handle any circumstance that comes along and remain independent Mm -hmm. in in Christ. (coughs) So, yeah, it's an extremely important verse, yeah. but within the context of the Christian life, 
because we all are encountering the various trials of the circumstances. Sometimes right. it's a great circumstance, you're being honored or something, other times it's a trial right. and you're being, uh, you know, you're having to endure something. But you remain, if you're being honored, the problem is you don't want to get proud. Mm -hmm. uh, if, if you're being crushed, the problem is you don't want to, you know, throw away your faith and mm -hmm. give in. But you can remain independent of either of those circumstances because Christ enables you to. Mm -hmm. I think it, I yeah. think it's been You're right on target. On as God God supports you in the high places and not so much necessarily in the low places because every time I read or at least you know when I've read that verse or meditated on that verse it's always you know like. I've gotten this far, and you know I've got this great opportunity. God's going to do this, right? It's all good, good stuff. It's always. But it, but <laughs> but when you stuff. read it, yeah, like you get, like just what y'all were talking about with your verse. And so when you read it in the context, like you're saying, like you mm -hmm. know, being independent of the circumstances, right? Mm -hmm. So God, with, with God's help and with God's strength, right, you're blowing through him. And it's not anything he's doing. Mm -hmm. And so it's like it, I can definitely see now how it it really yeah. can be taken out of context. Yeah, and this is Philippians four thirteen. Yeah. Any guys else want to share anything from there? Don't forget there's a word for. I know, right? There's the conjunction. Ah, yes. For. For I can do all things. Because I can do all things. Yeah. Good. So one of the things we were talking about is just there's there's different situations where people have come to us and said, you know, I feel like God's saying this to me and this is the verse and so I, I do encourage you, if someone's saying encouraging some activity, some spiritual practice, some thing, like I've had people come to me and say, we ought to do a Jericho prayer for that. I'm like, what's a Jericho prayer? And, uh, and so one of the things I've started asking is just, you know, what verse do you point to for that practice or that activity or that encouragement? And then I go and do what we just did here. I read it and say, does that verse or series of verses they gave me seem to mean what they think it means and um, I think there's a lot of odd practices going on in the church in, in the evangelical church in in just the worldwide church that if they would just, people would just say you know what verse do you point to for that idea or that practice it would clear up a lot of confusion about it um, cool so we uh, or need to hit a break, but I fixed my video. So to end this thing, I want to show uh, just this little thing from the Bible Project. And kind of the heart of all this is that we would be able, if someone says, hey, explain to me the book of Philippians, or explain to me the book of Second Chronicles, as we spend a lot of time doing something, as we go verse by verse, or chapter by chapter, or paraphrase, eventually we would be able to sit down and just explain something to somebody. Um, so when I show this, this is not to say, oh, everyone's done all the work for me, so I don't have to ever go to the scriptures. No, it's to say this is one way that someone who's done what we were just doing, we're observing, interpreting, applying, has done in a beautiful way an explanation. We're going to do the book of Nahum because it was one of the shortest ones they had. Um, but but it's, it's to me. Yeah, please. Uh, you know, I mentioned earlier Alistair Begg. Mm -hmm. How many of you are familiar with him? Anybody? Okay. One of the one of the really good preachers, I like Piper too. Yeah. You know, there's some really good preachers. Alistair Begg has talked about how he prepares a sermon. What we're talking about is how he does it. Mm -hmm. He gets pen and paper and he starts asking questions about the passage. Mm -hmm. What does this tell me? What what principle can I extract from this? 
exactly the way we're doing this is the way he gets ready to preach on Sunday morning. Of course, he gets a lot deeper. He does that first, and then he looks at commentaries. But only until he's done this does he Mm -hmm. look at commentaries to see if they agree or disagree. And if they disagree, well, fine. Yeah. So, yeah, I consider this is... So you don't want to jump too fast to the commentary. So what I'm about to show you is a commentary on the book of Nahum. You know, in commentaries, I have the bottom there. Be careful about heading to these too quickly. But they're sure fun. So here's a fun one. Are you from the Bible? The book of the prophet Nahum. This short prophetic book is a collection of poems announcing the downfall of one of Israel's worst oppressors, the ancient empire of Assyria, and its capital city, Nineveh. The Assyrians arose as one of the world's first great empires, and their expansion into Israel resulted in the total destruction and exile of the northern kingdom and its tribes. The Assyrian armies were violent and destructive on a scale that the world had never seen before, and so Israel and its neighbors were awaiting the downfall of Assyria, which eventually came in the year 612 BC. The Babylonians rose up and began a rebellion that overtook Nineveh and brought down the Assyrian Empire. And so chapter 2 depicts the fall of Nineveh in vivid poetry, and chapter 3 then explores the downfall of the empire as a whole. But this book isn't just an angry tirade against Israel's enemies. The introductory chapter shows us that there is way, way more going on here. The book opens with an incomplete alphabet poem that begins by describing a powerful appearance of God's glory. It's very similar to how the previous book, Micah, began and how the next book, Habakkuk, is going to conclude. And it's God, the all-powerful creator, coming to confront the nations and bring his justice on their evil. And the poem opens by quoting from the famous line of God's self-description after the golden calf incident in the book of Exodus chapter 34. The Lord is slow to anger. He's great in power. He won't leave evil unpunished. And so the rest of the poem goes back and forth, contrasting the fate of the arrogant, violent nations with the fate of God's faithful remnant. When God brings down all the arrogant empires, he will provide refuge for those who humble themselves before him. Now, here's what's really interesting, is that you thought this book was only about Assyria, but Nahum actually nowhere mentions Nineveh or Assyria in chapter 1. And when he describes the downfall of the bad guys, he uses Isaiah's language about the fall of Babylon, which happened much later in history. And not only that, Nahum also describes the downfall of the bad guys as good news for the remnant of God's people. It's a direct allusion to Isaiah's good news about the downfall of Babylon. And so all these little details from chapter 1, they come together to make a key point. For Nahum, the fall of Nineveh is being presented as an example, as an image of how God is at work in history in every age, how he won't allow the arrogant or violent empires of our world to endure forever. So the message of Nahum is actually very similar to that of Daniel. Assyria stands in a long line of violent empires throughout history, and Nineveh's fate is a memorial to God's commitment to bring down the violent and the arrogant in every age. With this perspective from the opening chapter, the book then returns to its focus on Assyria. And so chapter 2 describes the Battle of Nineveh and the overthrow of the city in progressive stages. So first we see the front line of Babylonian soldiers, and then we read about the charge of the chariots, and then the chaos on the city walls as the city is breached, then the slaughter of Nineveh's people, then the plundering of the city. 
Chapter 3 goes on to describe the results of the city's downfall for the empire as a whole. So Nahum begins by announcing a woe upon the city whose kings built it with the blood of the innocent. It's an image of how injustice was built into the very system that made Assyria so successful. But their violence has sown the seeds of their own destruction, and so Assyria will fall before Babylon. The book concludes with a taunt against the fallen king of Assyria. He's stricken with a fatal wound, and from among all the nations that he once oppressed, no one comes to help him. Rather, they sing and celebrate his destruction. And that's how the book ends. Now, this is a gloomy book, but it's important to see how Nahum's message addresses the tragic and perpetual cycles of human violence and oppression in every age. Human history is filled with tribes and nations elevating themselves and using violence to take what they want, resulting in the death of the innocent. And the book of Nahum uses Assyria and Babylon as examples to tell us that God is grieved and that he cares about the death of the innocent and that his goodness and his justice compel him to orchestrate the downfall of oppressive nations. And God's judgment on evil is good news, unless... Of course, you happen to be Assyria. Which brings us all the way back to the conclusion of that opening poem in chapter 1, which tells us that the Lord is good and a refuge in the day of distress. He cares for those who take refuge in him. And so the little book of Nahum invites every reader to humble themselves before God's justice and to trust that in his time he will bring down the oppressors of every time and place. And that's what the book of Nahum is all about. what's going on here it just is a wonderful way of quickly orienting yourself and he does and he, they do this for every book of the bible now they're doing just some topical things which are just fabulous so uh, it's a great resource for all of us so let's take a, a two minute break and we're going to go out and do one more lab thing and then we're done so two minute break yeah the men's group did Habakkuk thank you and it's the same thing except it's Babylon uh huh I asked the guys at the end of the study what did you get out of a backup? And one guy said, well, I know you don't smoke it. <laughs> Good to hear. We have such an impact. <laughs> no, you don't smoke it. Habakkuk. You know, the end of Habakkuk was, was a famous verse in the, in the Passion you know, thing for a while. Was, you know, even though the, the leaf wither and, you know, the, how it ends. Yeah, yeah, back and forth. And yet, why? Well, one of the things in there that is accused of the Babylonians of sexual abuse in chapter two. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Interesting. If you abuse yeah. people physically, yep. he's talking about getting them drunk to gaze at them. Yeah. Yeah. He said, it will come back to you. It is very interesting. Uh, this little Ecclesiastes there's nothing new under the sun. It just kind of keeps repeats. You know? No, no, that's not great. Right. 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 Right.
they're so they're so good. And they're now in, they're now translated out, I think, into fifty languages around the world. That project. You need to play with it. It's and you can all download them to your phone, laptop, and they've got one uh, which you ought to look. I'll send it to you. It's all um, you know. Michael Heiser is this interesting theologian. Well, he did a series of them all about um, the Elohim and the gods that they did an interesting interpretation. I, I really thought was helpful in illustrating kind of Michael Heiser's main point that. They've got a podcast too that's really worth hearing. Somebody sent me that particular one on wow. some time ago. Did they think there was violence that you were dealing with, or the violent nations? And I didn't really realize what they. What were it was. About. Got it. Yeah. yeah but I got it. Thumbs up, man. Thumbs up. Like Call of Duty, really? Yeah, I don't know why. It's just really fun. I'm like I've to blow away the World War II Russians. Yeah, well, <laughs> well, and I do the online stuff too. So I do like the multiplayer deathmatch stuff, and uh, I think I've received to like level six or seven now. Wow. So I'm up there, but yeah, that's fun. But I don't know, journaling and for whatever reason, coloring. Like I've somehow gotten back into like those adult coloring books are real yeah. complex. Yeah, I don't know. There's something like really therapeutic from that. Yeah, it's just cool. Very fun. Have you played any of the Jackbox games? Uh -uh. Those are so fun. Are they? Yeah. If you ever get a group of like five or six people together, a plus experience. Oh, okay. Yeah, those are those are a blast. There's there's usually family friendly filters, so you want to use those when you play, and uh, they're they're a ton of fun. So that's one of my favorite go-to party games. Okay. Where, where, where are you? So, like, they have them on the Switch or the computer, all the different platforms, and they have a series called the Party Packs. Okay. Um, so, if you're looking for one that's fun, Drawful is like five bucks on the Switch, and it's tons of fun and hilarious if you have the right group of friends. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, we, we've got Xbox. I've got an Xbox One. Okay. I think my brother's also got an Xbox One, so they had it for Xbox. You have to check. I don't know the answer to that. You actually play it on your phone, and the Xbox just distributes it to the screen. It's kind okay. Of oh, okay. I got you. So you have to have all your set up to a smartphone to get to a browser. Yeah, okay. I'll have to look that up. All right. Well, let's, let's finish this thing out. And I just want to um, share with you one other book. This is Gary's uh, number one book he recommends on... How to Get Stuff Out of the Word of God. Uh, Sarah, would you hit the light for me real fast? This is Rick Warren's Bible Study Methods. And what I did is I put in your notes. Like turn it off? Yeah, just the, the that's perfect. That yeah, so I put in your notes just Rick Warren's 12 Methods of Bible Study. We've been doing a lot of this devotional kind of thing where you observe, you interpret, you apply. It's a devotional Bible study. It's the most common one. Um, but I, he has this acronym called Space Pets, which I think is very useful. So in your notes, it says uh, a sin to confess. That's the S. Is there a promise to claim, an attitude to change, a command to obey, an example to follow, a prayer to pray, an error to avoid, a truth to believe, or something to praise God for? Do you guys see that in our Method Number 1 devotional? Yes. 
that's a really helpful thing. So if you're looking for questions to add to the questions we've already been talking about, like who's the audience, what are key terms, what are key places, these are great questions to ask to, as you head towards an application for yourself. So that's a, that's a very useful one. Uh, but he has 11 others that I just want to like blast through real fast. And uh, this would be a chapter summary. So, you know, chapter summary says, I'm just taking the whole Philippians 3 and we're just doing the whole chapter. And, you know, this idea of reading something through at one sitting is really, really, really helpful. So these kind of things you might have to do over a series of days. But if you read the chapter five times without stopping, without looking up keyword searches, without doing notes, just you read the chapter five times and you just go. And then after you've read through five times, then you start writing down, like, you know, what are the contents? What's the summary? What's the point? What are some key terms in this? What are, is, a, is a key verse? Notice in that Nahum video we just saw, he had a couple of key verses that jumped out to him. Well, you would do the same thing. You know, and then you would go through, what are some challenges um, to understanding this or applying this, central lessons? Then you would end up with a conclusion. So to really do this well would probably take about 30 minutes at the fastest. So this is not a five to 10 minute way to do it, but this is a really helpful thing to get a feeling. And then let's say you had a book that was six chapters long, Ephesians. You could do a chapter a day, do six chapter summaries, and then later you might do a book summary where you take all those chapter summaries and put them together and make a book summary. Like the Nahum was a whole book summary kind of concept. So another method that he does, kind of keeping it fresh, would be a character quality. Like if you want to say the character quality of faithfulness or perseverance or loyalty, you could do a character quality definition and you could do like a blue letter Bible, go do a keyword search, get a list of 20 verses that all say faithful or faithfulness. You could use a concordance to co-find that. You could pick a couple memory verses and you say, God, I just, after reading these 20 verses, this is kind of what I'm, what would be my analysis of what you mean when you say the word faithful. It's this kind of quality. And God, is, as I look at my life, I'd like to grow in that. So you apply it to a situation in your life to work on. And all these are, are kind of spelled out in great detail with quizzes. So if this kind of appeals to you, I highly recommend getting this book, add it to your birthday Christmas list, because they're all kind of spelled out in there. Same idea with thematic. You know, what's a theme in Scripture? Like a theme might be God's you know, pursuit of the nations. You know, God's caring about a people groups. There's different themes. You could pick a theme and do the same kind of thing as a character quality. You could do a biography. So you could go say, okay, I'm going to do a biography of Boaz. And I'm going to go learn everything I need to know about Boaz. So you'd get the name. You'd find out where the Bible talks about him. You'd create a life outline of the person. And you would find character qualities. And you'd then say, okay, how can I learn to be like Boaz in some ways? Um, topical is a popular one, especially um, Gary does a lot of topical sermons. So Gary may say, you know, I really want to do a series on baptism, for example. Like his recent series of baptism, he picked the topic, and then he compiled a list of verses related to that topic, and then he preached a sermon based on that, or a series of sermons. You can do the same thing. You can pick a topic of something that interests you. You can compile a list of verses, consider each verse individually, and then see how each would add to a whole idea about that one topic. And then you write out your conclusions at the end. Word studies are a ton of fun, a little bit of work, but a ton of fun, where you can say, I'm just going to look for every instance of the word grace, for example. And uh, if you guys uh, have ever heard, Gary has this uh, top thing he preaches on the word grace, where he defines it not as unmerited favor, but something else. And the reason he defines it as something else 
is because when you plug in your definition into all these passages, um, it doesn't work for you to plug an unmerited favor into every place you find the word grace. So a word study would give you a greater understanding of what a word means. Um, and, and so that's why that's a very, very useful thing to do. So when you see that word, you, you don't immediately think of a, maybe a, an unhelpful definition. Um, just to say everyone, if you want to, Gary's definition of word grace is God's empowerment to do what he's called you to do. That's, that's the definition that he uses a lot. Um, method A would be a book background. So that's kind of what another, uh, that, that mayhem thing we just did. You know, a book survey um, is similar in some ways. I'm going to, for time, just kind of blast by these. Um, you got a chapter analysis. You got a book analysis. Um, and then verse-by-verse verse analysis. This is something that Jerry does a lot in his um, studies. He's going verse-by-verse verse through a whole book of the Bible. And we're going to read it. You're going to paraphrase it. You're going to ask good questions. You're going to do all the cross-references. So all people come out of Jerry's Sunday school class and say, yeah, we spent three weeks on 1 John 1.1, 1, 1, and we're still going. And it's not because they can't read. It's because they're taking it one verse, but then there's all these cross-references, all these ideas, and saying, well, what does he mean by light in the book of John? Well, let's go chase that down. Let's even about the word. And, and so you're kind of doing all this cross-reference thing, getting a greater understanding at a deep level of verse by verse. But, but the final thing that I just want to hit on in your notes is you want to share with others what you're learning. The, the idea of all this is not to keep it yourselves, but to be a witness for Christ, not just to unbelievers, but to believers. So the heart of all this is you would have a place already in your schedule, not just to study the word, but to share what you're learning. So whether that's the dinner table, whether that is a Facebook group, whether that's a text group, whether it's a Saturday morning men's study, whether that is a you know family dinner, whatever the, the place is, pick a place and say, hey, I was reading on Nahum and man, that's a violent book, you know, and let me tell you just some things that I learned about Nahum today, or I was thinking about Philippians 4.13, and I spent 10 minutes, so I'm going to share 60 seconds what I learned about Philippians today, and you just, you just share it in that one moment, and I think that is the thing that is most missing uh, from our day-to-day interaction with each other. So I'm going to hand off to Jerry for our last little bit here, and then we're done. Incidentally, in the men's group, we did Romans verse by verse. It took 47 years. <laughs> I thought you were still doing going, so. <laughs> no, but the grandchildren finally finished it. <laughs> Let's see here. Let's go. What we're going to do this, this last session, and uh, we're going to take a and we're going to work this out together instead of a different group having a different side of the room have a different passage. We're going to take a short passage and we are going to just do the observation things. Now, one thing that observation can do while you're just looking, observation can lead to other observation. You'll see what I mean, I think, in a minute. We're going to look at Luke 5. And we're going to look at verses 12 through 16. And incidentally, one of the values of the particular NASB I have, but other, other translations will do this too, or other Bibles, is they tell you where the paragraphs begin and end. Uh, the old King James is just one verse after another, but uh, it's helpful to realize, oops, paragraph 
begins here and ends here. Uh, and mine does this by making the new paragraph verse that begins a new paragraph in bold. Uh, others may just draw different show different paragraphs. Uh, but what we're going to do is we'll take a look at this and we're going to use some of the questions that we've been talking about, which you can do. So Luke 5, verse 12. While he was in one of the cities, behold, there was a man covered with leprosy. And when he saw Jesus, he fell on his face and implored him, saying, Lord, if you are willing, you can make me clean. And he stretched out his hand and touched him, saying, I am willing, be cleansed. And immediately the leprosy left him. And he ordered him to tell no one, but go and show yourself to the priests and make an offering for your cleansing, just as Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But the news about him was spreading even farther, and large crowds were gathering to hear him and to be healed of their sicknesses. But, there's that word, but. But Jesus himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Okay, so uh, right off the bat, let's start with, uh, first of all, what's it about? Just a quick leper. Yeah, it's about Jesus. a leper approaching Jesus. All right. And who's in it? These are simple questions. They're very simple. The leper and Jesus are in the passage. Yep. The what? The leper's in the passage. The leper's in the passage. Jesus is in the passage. Jesus is in the passage. And then we do in verse 15 have the statement that there are crowds now oh. gathering around one another. But they don't. They have a place in the passage, but not quite uh, the way the leper and Jesus do. Now, what do we learn about the man, the leper? Number one, he's a leper. Okay. Advanced case. So he had it for a while. Okay. Good. Notice what, what he said. Hear what he said. So, did everybody hear what he said? There was. He had an advanced case of leprosy. How do you know that? He was covered with it. He was covered with it. It is an advanced case. He has had this for years. <coughs> leprosy, you don't wake up one morning and you're covered with it when you were okay the day before. I was using it with it, so it didn't say So, you, you know, this tells us, because it says he was covered with it, right away we know this guy has had it for years. Um... Now, that's that's there. It's just a question of picking it out. All right. What do we incidentally now observation upon observation? What do we know about lepers in the Bible? Uh, I have a note that says it's a Greek word was used for various diseases affecting the skin. So it wasn't just a one. It's more thing. than one type of skin disease yeah, in those days. Yes. But what what do we, what oh, else do we know about lepers? Ostracized. Yes. Yeah. They were ostracized. Okay. Far away. All right. Isolated. I'm sorry, what did they have to do? Isolate. He was isolated. isolated. Yeah. No, okay. No, no interaction, social interaction. Yeah. Okay, they were ostracized. Uh, they had to stay far away. I think the rule may be 50 feet. They had to call out. They had to call out. Uh, unclean. How would you like to be that? You know, if nothing else, they keep you away from crowds. 
The only value to it would be you would be sure to get a seat on the 50-yard line. Because <laughs> all you were walking in the city, so. <laughs> you walk out of the stadium saying, unclean, unclean. <laughs> okay. What about. Um, this is where that Bible dictionary is great, this kind of background stuff. So. It does, yeah. Uh, because that'll give you some insight. But here the leper, um, we know now that he has had it for a while. You wonder what his situation was if, at the time that it developed for the first time he was married with children. Yeah. He would not be able to live at home. He would not be able to be around his children. He would have to look at them from a distance. People did not uh, touch him. People were afraid of him. Any of you remember the Ben-Hur movie with uh, Charlton Heston? Uh, there's a scene in there that, that duplicates the problem with the leper. Uh, they're trying to, uh, Esther is trying to, and trying to bring uh, Ben-Hur's mother and sister to Jesus because they're lepers. And they go past a blind man and they drop a coin and they, in his plate and they ask him where Jesus is. And he tells them that he's been arrested and that sort of thing. And as they are leaving, the blind man hears other people say, Lepers! Lepers! And he takes his plate and dumps the coin out onto the ground. That is a good example of the impact lepers had uh, on people in general there. It was considered to be highly contagious. That's why all the animals. Okay. Now... What does this all tell you about the leper? <coughs> what do you picture do you get about this particular man based on what we've just said about lepers and leprosy? He's lonely. Pardon? He's very lonely. Very lonely. He's very lonely, yes. But uh, he's willing to take, to understand, to go to God. Mm -hmm. He's willing to take yeah. yeah, I would say he humbled himself. He's humbling himself before Jesus. And Jesus takes a view. What? And Jesus judges him. Yeah. Notice this. Uh, what's he doing so, you say Jesus touched him. What's he doing so close to Jesus that he can touch him? He's supposed to be 50 feet away. What does that tell you about this guy? Yeah, he's also desperate. He, he's willing to violate the regulation. He, this man is desperate. Mm -hmm. And what's he say to Jesus? I am willing. No, what's, no, what's he, says, he say to Jesus? If, Lord, if you are willing, you if can you are willing. Can make it. Now, what does that say about his belief in Jesus? That's great faith. It's, it's kinda... He's got faith. I mean, we're that way a little lot, aren't we? We know he can do it. The question is, will he? Our, a lot of our prayers is, Lord, I know you can do this. If you're willing, you can do this. What's Jesus say? Well, that, that might also indicate his mindset that he is not worthy to be cleansed. You know, you know like, I don't deserve Good. this. Good. That, that may show where he is. I'm a leper. I'm a, a castaway. Uh, I'm hated by everybody around me. For all I know, you see me the same way. When we were talking about paraphrases, uh, one of my, I told you J.B. Phillips is one of my favorite paraphrases. In this passage, 
the leper comes before him and says, uh, if you're willing, uh, you can heal me. The way Philip responds, in, in this, Jesus says, I'm willing. But in, a, in the J.B. Phillips paraphrase, and I really like this, Jesus says, in, in J.B. Phillips, he says, if you want to, you can heal me. Jesus responds in Phillips, of course I want to. Isn't that true? I mean, yeah. the Lord is so much more concerned about yeah. us than we realize. And I, I think you're right on. I, I think that he had such a low self-image and low opinion of himself, he was projecting that onto Jesus. That's a great observation. Uh, yeah, Rick. So um, the leper says, or if you're willing, you can make me clean. He's asking without doubt in his heart. He knows Jesus can. Yeah. <coughs> he obviously knows who he is. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing. The, the lepers, the uh, the castaways, the quote bad women, you know, all that sort of thing. They knew who he was. And they they could spot him right on up. When we did this in the pulpit a few uh, a couple of years ago, we used the Syrophoenician woman. She was a Gentile. And she approaches it and says, Son of David. How does she know that? That's a messianic title that only the Jews use. She's a Gentile, and she says, Son of David, have mercy on me. But this is the way we all should be approaching Jesus, just like David did in Psalm 86. Hear my cry, O Lord, for I am afflicted and needy. Well, the the leper goes. He's afflicted. I think it's fair to say he wonders if Jesus would even approach him, allow him to approach him, not if he is. Now, what does it tell you about Jesus? He didn't run away. <laughs> he, he didn't run away. away. Isn't that interesting? <laughs> I think that he understood, like you said, he, he did see that he was the if you are willing. He could have just said be healed. Yeah, that's a good question. Why did he Especially touch him? I'm just sure. Yeah, and he, and he knew when he contacted or touched him. I'm getting too confused. Go ahead, Bill. Uh, he probably did. Oh. To show the other people around him that he didn't care about that and that he had the ability to heal him. Okay, good. Also, and I, I probably haven't been had any human touch or contact most of my life. All right, good too. Both answers are real good. I found yeah. that where it says, uh, when the man saw Jesus, he bowed his face to the ground, begging to be healed. Mm-hmm. Okay. So Jesus saw him beg. I mean, he put his face to the ground. I mean, he didn't just look at him and say, I want you to you know, heal me. He, he bowed before him. Yeah, he humbled himself. He humbled himself. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I, I find this very interesting. Uh, Jesus touches him. 
He didn't have to. In Luke 17, ten lepers approach him, and they keep their distance. And they cry out, Jesus, son of David, have mercy on us. And Jesus doesn't get anywhere close to them. He says, go and show yourself to the priest. And as they go, they're healed. Uh, we're getting, I think, something real interesting here. He didn't have to touch him to heal him. So, and I think the answer's been given. Why did he? Because they had faith. Because they believed. Okay. Good. Yeah, Rick? Just, um, I've got the, the woman with the, uh, the blood issue. What was it, 12 years? told her because of your faith you've been healed she, re she, was, she had that same faith <coughs> okay uh, and what you said that he had, had no contact with nobody had touched this man in years I think Jesus went beyond what the leper asked him he didn't just heal him physically Psychologically, and what does that tell you about Jesus? He wants to heal all of us, not just the things that we see that are wrong with us. Yeah. Uh, he is prepared to go far beyond what we are asking. That should tell you something about Jesus. Yeah. I also see the uh, the the Lord is in parentheses in this. Mm -hmm. verse in Philippians, I mean uh, Ephesians, that I think fits what Jesus is doing here, and uh, I love this verse, it's Ephesians uh, 3.20 Now unto him who is able to do exceeding abundantly of all that we may ask or even think according to the power of working that is exactly what Jesus has done here, he has gone far beyond what this guy he just wanted to be cleansed outwardly. Jesus cleansed him inwardly. Okay, one other thing. Incidentally, I love this passage. If Jesus has this attitude toward an outcast leper, what would his attitude be? Under the uh, under the Levitical law, if you touch a leper, you're unclean. You're unclean. So what happened when Jesus touched this guy? He became clean. The leper did. The leper became clean, and Jesus, under the Levitical law, was unclean. Became clean. unclean. Now, what is that a picture of? Swap clean and unclean. 
Uh, it's a picture of the atonement, that's right. He became unclean on our behalf, that we might become clean. Uh, he who knew no sin became sin for us in order that we might be righteous in God's sight. Now, this, that one's under the surface. That's, that's not obvious, but it's still a beautiful picture of what he did. He is prepared out of his compassion for this leper to become unclean in order for him to become clean. And that is a love I cannot fathom. So this is a beautiful picture. Now, two things. Jesus tells them, go show yourself to the priest. Why? He's clean. Why does he need to go show himself to the priest? Weakness. He was clean. He cleaned him. Probably well. And I think, you know, like can show to other people he was unclean. Now he's clean because he touched them. Okay. Sure. Yeah, there's a reason why he's to go to the priest. Yeah. To offer his sacrifices. Okay. To command. I'm reading it. And so that Moses commanded you cleansing as a testimony. <coughs> Okay, good. It's the law. And Jesus keeps the law. That's what they understood they were to do, and Jesus does not violate that in their, uh, in their law. And Jesus is going to change all that when he becomes unclean for us. But it was their law, and he is going to stay consistent with their law. The other problem is, is it could be a bad example. Well, then other people run around without going to the priest declaring they're unclean. They've been clean too. So, you know, it, he's staying within the law. Okay, one other thing. Uh, notice in 15 and 16, you have a contrast because 16 begins with a but. What's going on in 15 and 16? Well, he told him to tell no one. <laughs> Don't tell anybody, but go show yourself to the priest, okay? And what what's the result? When it spread, he went to somewhere. He went to a place by himself to pray and into the wilderness. Okay. He became very popular. Um, and what does that tell you? And Jesus retreats to the wilderness. What does that tell you about Jesus? What do you think? He needs time with the Father. He needs time with the Father, yeah. He doesn't seek the approval of men. He seeks or what he doesn't do is, yeah, Rick. How about the time of refreshing? Okay. You know, when you're around people like that, like he was, I believe that physically, emotionally, spiritually, he gets strength. Because I've heard that pastors, you know, they, like Gary, he gets that month sabbatical so he can refresh. You know? If Jesus had to do that, what does that say about us? Mm -hmm. do the same thing. Yep. Yeah. That was Gary's article he wrote to the church this month. Huh? That was Gary's article yeah. in the church this month. If Jesus is going to do this, we have to do it too because we get drained. Let me suggest one other thing because we need to shut it down. And that is, Jesus uh, is not uh, taken with popularity. 
Pardon? He wasn't, he wasn't boastful. Right. Yeah, he, yeah, he doesn't. Uh, there's The same passage is given over in Mark. Let's mm-hmm. look at it real quick. It's helpful if, if, if the same incident is told elsewhere. It's helpful to read those two together. Uh, in Mark uh, chapter 1, Verse 40, And the leper came to Jesus, beseeching him, and falling on his knees before him, and saying, If you are willing, you can make me clean. Moved with compassion. Now, you all already picked that up. And Luke doesn't say that he's moved with compassion, but you picked it up anyway. Moved with compassion, Jesus, Jesus stretched out his hand and touched him and said to him, I am willing, be cleansed. Immediately the leprosy left him, and he was cleansed. And he sternly warned him immediately and sent him away. And he said to him, See that you say nothing to anyone, but go show yourself to the priest and offer for your cleansing what Moses commanded as a testimony to them. But he went out and began to proclaim it freely. Now, Luke doesn't say that exactly, that uh, he went out and began to talk to everybody. But Mark uh, adds to it, and we get a, a broader understanding of the passage. But anyway, we got we need to shut it down. Any thoughts about the passage as we've looked at it? Any application? I feel like a whole lot of stuff I never even thought of has been addressed here. It's really cool. I'm sorry, what? Sorry. I feel like a lot of stuff has been addressed and that I haven't thought of. I, I, I like this deeper understanding of Scripture. Yeah, it's what we're saying. There's treasure on the surface, but you dig down under the surface, you see what's there. There. Anybody else? Yeah. So you're saying the differences in these stories, even though they're like the same story, there are minor differences. You're saying that just makes it more authentic. It does. Okay. Yes, it does. Uh, if you've ever asked my wife and I to recount an event, we do recount it differently. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But I could see how a lot of people, and a lot of people do, yeah. they discount it and they say, okay, well, they're different stories. They're yeah. different. So that just means that it's wrong. They just, mm-hmm. they're, you know, yeah. How do you know what's true? Yeah. But I didn't think about it that way, that you know, it's the same story. There are just some minor differences because people have different perceptions or you know, mm-hmm. different experiences. Well, so it may come across. We'll get this in particular when we talk about the resurrection in the Gospels. Mm-hmm. They're, they're, they're handled from different angles. Mm-hmm. But um, and this if I'm listening to witnesses on the witness stand and they are duplicating each other to the letter, we've got shenanigans going on. Mm-hmm. They've been getting together and comparing their stories mm-hmm. and making sure their stories are the same. Mm-hmm. The gospel writers didn't do that and the fact that they've got uh, differences to some extent. Now notice that in each case, the fundamental basis of the event or story is the same, mm-hmm. but there are differences. That means they were not conspiring to get, you know, make this story up. They didn't. This enhances credibility. It doesn't detract from it. And you can tell anybody that tells you that next time, well, it's awesome. Uh, you know, lots of inconfident. You got to tell me one. But it's not, even so, it doesn't do anything. Okay, anybody else have another thought? Any impact this passage or application on you? Okay. Well, thank you very much. There you go.